In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody is about to be on the edge of their seat right now, because I know that I am. I have an incredible guest for you today, this evening, depending on where you are in the world. If if you're in Europe, you could be at 9 in the morning. If you're in Hawaii, it could be 9 p.m. at night. But no matter where you are, prepare to get stoked. It's a true privilege to welcome Dr. Alexander Lebedov an acclaimed psychiatrist, data scientist, and entrepreneur who is illuminating the frontiers of psychedelic therapy. With MD and PhD credentials, coupled with over 15 years of psychiatry expertise, Dr. Lebedov offers a unique clinical perspective. But he is also a full-stack data scientist, leveraging AI and NLP to unlock healthcare insights. The fusion of humanity and technology defines his work. A serial innovator, Dr. Lebedov has launched startups applying data science and mental health. He is passionate about developing sustainable, resilience-oriented models of care. His mission is to harness technology to foster human flourishing on personal and societal levels. An award-winning scholar, Dr. Lebedov has earned accolades, including the prestigious Kaggle MLSP Schizophrenia Classification Prize and highly competitive NIH neuroimaging training. He publishes groundbreaking research on psychedelics, ability to instill meaningfulness. Beyond scholarship, he provides bespoke tech consulting for organizations and startups seeking to operate more efficiently through AI solutions. His expertise aids business across sectors for his nuanced work advancing psychedelics healing. His retreat was named among the best psilocybin retreats in Europe by Healing Maps. He charts a prudent, scientifically grounded path forward for this promising but complex field Please join me in warmly welcoming this accomplished polymath, Dr. Alexander Lebedev. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much, George. I I have to admit I almost blushed when you were spelling out these things. Um, thank you. Uh, that's probably one of the one of the shiniest introductions I've ever had. Um, and thank you for this. It, yeah, uh, it's impressive the way you put it. 
Um, yeah, pleasure to be here. And uh, as we already started talking, I really appreciate you finding time to meet me. It's a 12 time difference between our time zones. I'm based in Sweden in Stockholm. Uh, that's where I, I'm currently residing and doing my research. Fantastic. Maybe you can give people a little bit of background on how you got to be in this field and just start off wherever you want to. Sure. Uh, also, as I mentioned, I have two versions of my story, short and long. So feel free to stop me if Please. I uh, if I go too detailed. So I was born and grew up in Russia. So I'm uh, I'm Russian by origin. I was born in Murmansk. That's the northern provincial town in Russia. Um, and uh, from the very early days, I was into medicine. So my parents told that it was from approximately five. Uh, I cannot verify it, but I, I, <laughs> I take their word for that. Uh, so I entered the medical um, school to prepare to become a medical doctor. So I was coming from a somewhat poor family. It was also a difficult time in Russia, collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the sentiment of change was all over. So, and uh, I once gave a lecture at UCL on psychedelics and I called it my reconciliation with the term change. So, uh, because uh, I was from a humble background, so I had to find smart ways of uh, getting my medical degree. So I uh, entered um, the uh, highly competitive military medical academy in St. Petersburg. So I managed to get a governmental tuition fee for my education um, and got into psychiatry very early. I think it was the first year in the in the medical school. I was blessed with the people I met on my path and uh, um, very early I got exposed to science again at the at the end of the first year. So I was my first project in psychiatry and neuroscience was uh, was quite intense. So we were working with highly resistant uh, psychiatric patients uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder with resistance resistant depression that were undergoing deep brain stimulation. That's a type of neurosurgery uh, for the patients uh, in which, well, tra traditional ways of, of addressing their problems do not work. And uh, that was the beginning of brain imaging uh, in my country of origin. So I had to learn a lot and uh, I had fascination with math very early since I was a kid. I was growing up. I was born in a family of engineers. I'm <laughs> the first uh, medical doctor in my family. Uh, but I learned to code quite early. <laughs> and uh, I uh, had to work with the code uh, also as a part of the research. So I was behind, I think, Russia's first fMRI study uh, back in the days. Uh, it's also a fascinating story in itself because yeah. we were limited with equipment. And but point of the matter, uh, that was probably the first time when I encountered research with psychedelics. Uh, back then, the information was very limited. There was a lot of misinformation about that. There still is, but it was way worse back then. And uh, my teachers in psychiatry have been very open-minded. Uh, I discussed that with them and they said, well, unfortunately, uh, the way it works now, we can electrodes in uh, resistant patients brain but there is no way we can 
restart these sorts of studies. Uh, no one knows why they got shut down. There were allegations that these substances may lead to chromosomal damage and so on, you know, like the, the story that was all over in the newspapers in the late 60s and 70s. So that was kind of put on hold. Um, but I, you know, I would say this interest was with me for the entire duration of my education. Also, two of my friends in Murmansk uh, died due to uh, drug addiction. Uh, two of my friends died from heroin overdose. One committed suicide. Uh, and uh, that's something that also, uh, I would say, stimulated my interest in, in psychedelics. Um, back then, uh, Iboga was legal in Russia, mm. so I, I had my own experience with uh, with Iboga. I just to understand how it works. Uh, that was just the beginning of of some anecdotal reports about its efficacy for treating addiction. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, once I uh, I think that was yes, that was the fifth year in the military medical school. I was really deep into scientific research. I was attending national and international conferences presenting our work. And at some point it became clear that I will have to part with the military uh, if I want to, if I, if I am to continue my scientific studies. Uh, it was totally supported uh, by, of course, by, by my teachers because they understood that there is no other way for me to continue this work. So I, uh, I left, I dropped off um from the military and transitioned to the state university and in some almost uh magical way managed to preserve my government tuition fee uh and uh, i eventually graduated from the state university uh and at the end of at the end of the last year in my medical school at the university i presented the results of our work uh, at the uh, European Psychiatric Congress in Munich, where I got noticed by my future employers in Norway. So they invited me to do a PhD in Norway, uh, which was focused on uh, application of uh, computational neuroimaging for understanding neurodegenerative disorders, the links between depression and uh, uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia and uh, leveraging machine learning algorithms to enhance uh, image-based diagnosis of uh, age-related neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, so that's how I, uh, uh, some may say, escaped. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's not, that's not uh, my word. That's, uh, that's, one, that's, that's how one of my good colleagues put it. Uh, and yeah, so since then I've been working uh well in the field so it's uh, it's been it's been over 15 years um since i started uh also as you mentioned in the beginning i competed in some machine learning competitions including uh the schizophrenia classification challenge which i where i took prize um co-authored one technical paper on one of the uh, novel machine learning algorithms uh, in, in collaboration with uh, uh, with the Royal Holloway London that that's the uh, that's the machine learning center in London uh, that's where 
a godfather, in my opinion, of uh, statistical learning theory, Vladimir, Vladimir Vapnik is from. He's the author of Support Vector Machines, one uh, one of the most widely applicable and one of the most well-known machine learning algorithms. So I, I collaborated with them and we published one technical paper. So point of the matter um, is um, I kept the interest in psychedelics. And once I saw Imperial College London publishing the studies, I, I immediately got in touch with them. Uh, I had a very specific hypothesis I wanted to test on uh, brain correlates of uh, the so-called eager dissolution phenomena, so which they liked. Uh, and uh, we started a collaboration, which resulted in two paper published together, uh, one on psilocybin and eager dissolution phenomena, and another one on LSD. So we were looking into acute changes in brain dynamics uh, occasioned by LSD administration and uh, managed to discover that acute changes and the magnitude of disintegration of the brain dynamics happening acutely during an LSD session was predictive of lasting personality changes in the, in the personality trait openness observed two weeks later. Um, and uh, so that was the time of my transition. So I defended my PhD in 2014 uh and uh, i moved to sweden i was invited for a postdoc at aging research center to work with uh, neurobiological and cognitive plasticity uh, we were studying uh, different means to enhance learning and neurobiological plasticity mostly in uh, older populations uh, i co-coordinated and coordinated several research trials uh, non-pharmacological pharmacological trials while keeping this collaboration with the with Imperial College London and uh, that was also the time when a non-profit organization in Sweden started called Swedish Network for Psychedelic Science and uh, uh, I I remember how it grew up from the very early days uh, it started like a small series of meetings in a place held by burners <laughs> um, and ultimately it grew up in a full-on non-profit organization uh, thanks to which we managed to get an approval to run Sweden's first clinical trial with psilocybin for major depression but back in the days it was very controversial um, I was invited to give different lectures I was very upfront about my interest and what motivated that interest um, uh, but it was it was not the easiest time back then. It was unthinkable to get any governmental funding for that. Now it's definitely doable, but back then it was more controversial. Right. And uh, well, and uh, I used to tell very regularly that psychedelics um, wasn't my main research field. And every year, as I was saying, it was becoming more and more difficult because I was invited to give lectures at you know, at local, international universities. And ultimately, I got the chance to run my own studies uh, in Sweden. So my first postdoc, I, after my first postdoc, I started my second postdoc, which very uh, kind of <laughs> organically and naturally converted into assistant professorship position. Now I hold a permanent uh, senior research specialist position. And uh, that was also the time when I was studying uh, my own studies, looking into recreational use of uh, psychedelics and different kinds of substances uh, with respect to uh, potential risks on um, 
psychosis-like traits, schizotypy, which is sort of very roughly speaking, right? It's probably not a very uh, psychiatric way of putting it, but like mild schizophrenia type symptoms. Uh, well, schizotypal, schizotypal traits are currently classified rather as personality disorders, mm. but it's uh, there is a continuity between schizotypy and schizophrenia. So that's what we were studying as well. Uh, also inviting a subpopulation of psychedelic users to our lab to test them to see how whether there are any aberrations in the way they learn. So we modeled their learning abilities computationally, uh, leveraging methods of reinforcement learning. And spoiler alert, uh, there are no aberrations. So if anything, psychedelic users performed better compared to their non-psychedelic user counterpart in a number of tasks, which was interesting. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I was continuing to study. And it was, an, a, again, a, a very peculiar position because uh, back then, and it still, I would say, remains so that uh, right now the sentiment around psychedelics, I think it's almost a backlash from, uh, from a scientific community that was the research of which was suppressed for, for several decades. And now the sentiment around psychedelics is very much positive. And uh, I mean, for the record, of course, I think that psychedelics have a tremendous potential to transform psychiatry and mental health. Maybe we can talk about it later mm -hmm. uh, in more details. Uh, but for me, it was very important to understand uh, where are the so-called danger zones, where we should be careful, because I genuinely believe there is, in machine learning, uh, there is a very influential paper called No Free Lunch. Right. stating that there is no ideal algorithm that would always perform best compared to you know its alternatives so there are there are different data sets for which algorithms work better or worse and uh i mean my own life experience my scientific experience suggests that uh the so-called free lunch no free lunch principle generalizes for different aspects of research and life. So that's that was my take on psychedelics, which put me also in a peculiar position. Uh, I was still controversial enough for the mainstream science back then, right? Uh, that psychedelics were still somewhat controversial. But also some of the colleagues who were very pro-psychedelics, they were not sure what to make out of my interest. You know, is Alex trying to say that, you know, psychedelics are dangerous and course, that wasn't my intention. So I really value these substances in the context of treatment as really important tools that may help us address a lot of challenging problems uh, related to mental health and perhaps to some other um, other societal problems. Um, so that's mm -hmm. where I stand right now. So after um, after I got a permanent position at my university and, uh, and the possibility to run studies with psychedelics, I also got the chance to coordinate brain imaging arm of Sweden's first clinical trial with uh, psilocybin, as I mentioned. It was a study uh, that we pulled through the pandemic. It was, uh, I'm, I, I'm really proud of, uh, of making that happen together with, with the team. Uh, but still, you know, I understand that now it's even harder after what, all of what I said, it's harder to say that psychedelics is not the, uh, among the main focus of what I do. Uh, so what I, I would say my baby in science, so to speak, right? What fascinates me and intrigues me the most is to extend to which many aspects of our lives, our beliefs, our standards are shaped by contexts. Mm. 
uh, take, for example, the numerous child rearing approaches uh, that have evolved over time and were relevant in different periods of our history, right? And uh, or say varying beliefs in uh, conspiracy theories. Um, um, so that's uh, that's what fascinates me. That's what I study and how different beliefs, different ideas. Uh, can be treated differently in different historical periods and different contexts. Uh, so uh, maybe we're going to also talk today about, yeah. Uh, yeah, already mentioned about the study that we published and, uh, well, some of the tools that we used. Uh, it's called uh, Conspiracy Mentality Questionnaire, right? <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to read, if you don't mind, I'm going to yeah, read please some do. of the points from it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I will leave it to our listeners and perhaps to you to answer them for yourself um, without any any attempts to in introduce any biases. So the conspiracy mentality questionnaire. So point one, I think that many very important things happen in the world which the public is never informed about. Point two, I think that politicians usually do not tell us the true motives of their decisions. Point three, I think that government agencies closely monitor all citizens. Point four, I think that events which superficially seem to lack a connection are often the result of secret activities. Point five, I think that there are secret organizations that greatly influence political decisions. And so on. There are different tools to assess it, uh, but I want to invite you to reflect on this, right? So would would the responses to the questions that I, I just quoted be the same if asked, for example, before the Cambridge Analytica scandal or after? Would the answers to these questions vary significantly between responders in Russia, Sweden, um, Iran? Uh, so these are these are the things that fascinate me, or let's consider another scenario, yeah. right? The efficacy of treatments. When assessing the efficacy of medical psychiatric interventions, we often assume that the effects under the study that are under study are more or less stable. Uh, but is this a reasonable assumption? Say if we launch a study investigating the efficacy of psychiatric medication during a period, say, of economic growth or initiate a similar study during a crisis or in the midst of, of a pandemic, for that matter, is it reasonable to expect the same results? So this is the area of my study. <laughs> this is the main area of my study. I love it. There's so much in there, man. And it it's fascinating to see how long you've been around and, and how many different areas you've in camps and in and, and areas that you've investigated and been part of and you know i i've taken the i would have to say like i'm a i'm a four out of those five questions the yes you know and i i maybe it's my heavy psychedelic use i don't know but uh i think i think not only the conspiracy mentality questionnaire but you also use the epistemic belief scale you know yes. the uh, alternative facts the truth maybe you could talk a little bit more about some of the like the uh, the uh, epistemic belief scale and some of the tools you use before we talk about the study. Yes, yes. 
Um, yes, yeah, so you mentioned the term alternative facts, and for the yeah. record, uh, we were aware of the uh, of the pun, right? So it was kind of <laughs> semi-intended. I know who coined yeah. the term. We were fully aware of that, so we wanted to kind of gently implement it into the paper. <laughs> uh, and um, But really, uh, so the point that we were making in the study right now, we don't have good tools to differentiate between tinfoil type, right. tinfoil hat type, uh, type a conspiracy mentality and a healthy skepticism. Uh, I mean, you mentioned about the responses that you gave to, to the answers. And by the way, they were on scale from zero to 100. And uh, uh, my personal stance on it, right? So I, I firmly believe in the values of freedom of speech, open dialogue, despite all the contradictions. And uh, uh, I've been studying different kinds of personalities, also conspiracy ideation for quite a long time. And I know even people with, uh, well, with very convinced conspiracy mentality, shutting down the conversations around the topic uh, usually does more harm than good. So um, my personal stance is that I am in favor of a platform where different kinds of ideas, as long as they do not violate other people's uh, lives, freedoms, uh, there should be a platform and uh, there should be a platform for people to be heard. So back to your question about different tools, uh, with all these limitations in mind, right, that we don't have good ways to differentiate between uh, sometimes healthy skepticism and uh, unhealthy patterns of, well, for that matter, of conspiracy ideation. For the record, the population that we were studying mostly consisted of healthy people. They, we, there were people with psychiatric conditions, but the effects were stable regardless of whether or not we include people with psychiatric conditions uh, or not. But it's important to keep in mind yeah. that uh, the majority of people are healthy even if they score high on some of the uh, of the uh, clinical skills, uh, and uh, the tools that we were using, uh, the first one, the first tool, the conspiracy mentality questionnaire, uh, has been validated in several countries uh, uh, with quite diverse cu cultural background, and the second tool that you mentioned is the so-called epistemic belief scale, uh, which uh, in general, uh, evaluates how people treat knowledge, right? So what we take as an evidence uh, when uh, analyzing facts, for example, whether we have a tendency to rely more on intuition rather than facts. So there are several facets of this scale. So one, as I mentioned, it's the faith and intuition uh, over facts. So, for example, you know, you can uh, a participant can get a question. I trust my gut to tell me what's true and what's not. When uh, my initial impressions are almost always right, uh, these sorts of statements that people have to agree or disagree with. Uh, the other facet of it is the so-called need for evidence. Uh, and uh, one example of such a subskill would be an invitation to evaluate a statement, evidence is more important uh, than whether 
something feels true. Uh, so you see, or for example, a hunch or a guess needs to be confirmed with data or with facts. Uh, or a statement, uh, I trust the facts and not instincts when, uh, when evaluating whether something is true or not. And finally, the third facet of the uh, epistemic beliefs tool uh, is um, the facet that is related to the uh, political coloring of truth, um, which is also an interesting topic on itself in, you know, in light of the uh, global events. Yeah. Uh, and this facet, this particular facet contains statements such as facts are dictated by those in power. Uh, what counts as truth is uh, dictated by those in power. Uh, scientific conclusions are often shaped by politics. Uh, and that facts depend on political context. So this is that was another tool that we used. Uh, we used many tools in the study that you mentioned, uh, evaluating uh, psychedelic users and also you know relationships between personality structure and these sorts of beliefs in relation to to different substances. And uh, so what we found is uh, indeed people among all the substances that we evaluated in different models, psychedelics had a consistent positive or psychedelic use, both uh, the, the history of psychedelic use and also the recency of psychedelic use was associated uh, with, uh, with some of these beliefs. Um, and importantly, some of the facets that one may perhaps link to a more arguably pathological ways of treating information, right? Like that different, uh, things that seem not connected are intricately connected secretly or, uh, you know, intricately connected. So there are hidden patterns. So this, th this uh, facet, for example, was not prominent among psychedelic users. So, and uh, uh, we are open to different kinds of interpretations. And to be fair, uh, once the study was out, uh, there were uh, there were citations of our study uh, in the context that psychedelics, psychedelic use is linked to higher conspiracy ideation. So we are open to this kind of discussion. Uh, I personally stand, my personal opinion is that it rather reflects non-conformism. So I don't see mm. evidence in the study for a... Um, pathological kind of conspiracy ideation. Uh, but uh, that's uh, that's what science is all about. It's about discussion and, um, and uh, confrontation, argumentation, uh, and, um, and uh, discussions on the, on the findings that we have. Uh, science is never settled, right? There should always be robust argument of people. How else do we know what's really happening unless we get the best people presenting their best arguments and then allowing us to form our own opinions about it? It's so, it's so necessary. It, uh, so I'm not even sure. So let me just start with this one here. In one of the studies you talk about 
the flexible thinking, psychedelic induced flexible thinking. So philosophically speaking, how should we evaluate ideas or insights that emerge through psychedelic induced flexible thinking? Do they reveal deeper truths or just reflect unconstrained cognition? Mm -hmm. um, that's not an easy philosophical <laughs> epistemological question, right? Uh, again, uh, I'm going to give uh, as much unbiased opinion as Please. possible based on the data that we have and also give my personal opinion, you know, based on it. my own beliefs. Thank you. Um, uh, if we are to take a stance of reductionistic science, right, that uh, assumes that our the phenomenology, our phenomenological experience, um, uh, even though it is questioned, but you know most of the uh, most of the research attempting to link uh, neurophysiology and phenomenology assumes that our phenomenology is a function of our brain activity, and uh, some may argue that since uh, the patterns of brain activity uh, becomes more random uh, or unpredictable during a psychedelic state. Some may argue uh, that that's what is reflected in phenomenology, and uh, perhaps in a way it's uh, it can be, uh, uh, you know, if we're talking about peak experiences, a uh, uh, more unbiased perception of reality uh, when the condition, the co cognition is unconstrained, and uh, so there is no ego, there is no dualistic perception of reality, and some may argue that this is a this is a uh, more unbiased perception of uh, the reality we are dealing with. Uh, at the same time, having seen several psychedelic experiences, uh, the behavioral patterns that may evolve during a psychedelic experience uh, clearly show that to every psychedelic experience uh, that a person is undergoing, uh, he or she brings their own way of looking at the reality. So point that I'm making, even though the rational or constrained perception, dualistic perception of reality is uh, dissolved, that also opens up uh, the unconscious dynamics um, that also introduce a lot into into the way people interact with the reality. So in that way, in my personal opinion, uh, psychedelics uh, definitely. Well, I mean, there there was a fear, right, in the uh, uh, in the in the sixties that uh, psychedelics dramatically change people's. Uh, well, my, my my good colleague, thanks to whom I I started psychedelic research. David Knott, you know, at one of the interviews at London's Real said, yeah, I mean, isn't it horrible that the substances that uh, influence the way people vote voted uh, were prohibited for, for that reason, uh, uh, despite having tremendous potential for medicine and for transforming mental health and, and neuroscientific research. So in that sense, um, um, I think psychedelics have remarkable capacity to help people to understand themselves uh, and uh, 
But when it comes whether acutely psychedelic experiences make the reality perception more objective, uh, I'm not sure. I th I think uh, they definitely make people more sensitive to um, to some of the dynamics that may be happening within the group they belong to. Uh, they, um, I mean, uh, they are called mind manifesting, right? So they make things that are not obvious, that are hidden, uh, more obvious and noticeable. So that's their power. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's something that is behind their, uh, their treatment potential because of that, uh, something that someone does not want to face becomes more obvious and important to ignore. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, so there are different ways of uh, working with psychedelics. Uh, and it is important to remember that uh, Western civilization um, currently doesn't have a, a very reliable tradition to work with psychedelics. We used to have, but most of these traditions got lost. And uh, the way we currently approach psychedelics and psychedelic research is very different compared to how they were historically approached and understood. So there are still indigenous communities um, in South America, for example, in which psychedelics are deeply embedded into their into the very fabric of their culture uh, that um, is a part of conflict resolution of uh, alignment within the group. So in that way, yes, put in uh, the context, in the cultural context, I do think that psychedelics may help to, if not more objectively look at the reality, but in my opinion, they do have the capacity to aid in conflict resolution. And uh, that's also evident by work of, uh, in my opinion, one of the uh, most relevant work in the, in the field of psychedelic research led by Leo Rosman from, the, from, from Imperial College London. Uh, and he is specifically studying uh, effects of psychedelics on conflict resolution. So they ran a study um, uh, in the context of ayahuasca retreat mm -hmm. where Palestinians uh, and Israeli participants were taking the medicine together. Um, fascinating study, one of the most important studies, I think, uh, in the field. So point that I'm making um, is that when put in the right context, I do think that there is a power in psychedelics to aid in shaping more resilient um, uh, ways to perceive and treat reality. Hmm. Um, and uh, that also brings my point that I often discuss with my colleagues, because if psychedelics are to stay in psychiatry for, you know, for that matter, to make a difference on mental health, they will have to inevitably transform uh, the way we treat mental health and possibly psychiatry itself. Um, for that matter, because uh, right now, psychedelics do not fit the way we have been historically approaching mental health. So usually when 
a psychiatrist prescribes a medication, uh, it's taken to control symptoms, to to give people some extra strength to to manage the symptoms, to numb the pain, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, psychedelics do something different, right? So what we discussed in the beginning, so they make things that may be ignored for a very long time, uh, more obvious. And in a way, they leave no other choice than just to confront a very, you know, very painful experiences. And it doesn't really fit that well into the model of very risk-averse psychiatry and mental health that we we currently have. And uh, and there is a there is a uh, a danger, in my opinion, that some of the some of the uh, I don't want to call them mistakes. I think that was an important lesson uh, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But some of the uh, perhaps missteps um, that happened in the 60s, there is a danger that we can repeat them these days. Uh, but in my personal opinion, uh, the problem lies in the lack of uh, traditions of working with psychedelics. Because I think. Um, this uh, this field, this uh, the substances are bigger than just the medications, and we should be aware of it. Uh, I think it's uh, I consider this point as positive rather than negative. So to me, it's good, and for me, it's important to comprehend that because they are bigger than just you know regular medications that you can get you know in the pharmacy or you know by a prescription from from your psychiatrist. We also uh, need to be more responsible in the way we incorporate them into the fabric of our culture. Yeah, it's fascinating that you bring up the way in which it has the potential to disrupt medicine across the board. And this, you know, I've I've got family members that suffer from, I come from a long line of people that suffer from mental illness. I don't say that to impress you but just to impress upon you that I get it, you know, on some level. And it seems to me that at least in the West medicine at some point decided that the best way to solve the problem is to put a patch on it and not think about it or suppress it. And if we look back, we can be like, Oh, we just, we just figured out a way to get through, but now you're right. Psychedelics force you. And and almost, even though it it forces you to confront the issue, it almost does it in a non-confrontational way. Because it puts you in this third-person perspective where you can look at it from over here. Hey, it's not yes. so bad if I look from over here. Hey, maybe I'm not that bad of a guy. Maybe I don't need to have this constant negative t- self-talk in my head that says that. Maybe I can let that go. You know, and it's it's fascinating to think about the way in which language may play a part in it. And that, that gets me back to this idea of like um, confrontation, psychedelics. And like and like language and, and and maybe like we we spoke earlier about how it allows you to see the world differently. It non-constraint thinking versus constraint thinking. Does that have something to do with like a default mode network and conditioning? Maybe it allows you to see through the conditioning, the political truths that we talked about. Like, what, what's the what's the relationship there? Yes, uh, you mentioned the default mode network, indeed one of the most re- uh, reproducible and consistent finding that we see 
as an effect of uh, psychedelics uh, is the um, is the so-called dissolution of the default mode network, which was linked to some of the um, core experiences um, in in relation to psychedelics, including ego dissolution phenomena. And uh, indeed, the default mode network uh, is an interesting network, which was discovered almost by accident, because most of the uh, studies of the brain imaging studies before the discovery of the default mode network were focused on solving some attentionally demanding tasks. And uh, so researchers consistently saw that while certain regions were engaged uh, during task resolution, so the other set of regions was consistently suppressed. Uh, and uh, so some brilliant scientists decided to reverse the problem and worked with some tasks that demand that different kinds of or modes of cognition, like uh, imagining the future, uh, initiating uh, self-referential thinking. Uh, and uh, interestingly, that's what appeared to stimulate engagement or be associated with engagement of, uh, of the default mode network. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we see that this network is consistently overly engaged, especially some components of this network is overly engaged in people suffering from some psychiatric conditions, serious psychiatric conditions, including major depression. Mm. And uh, so the uh, brain dynamics uh, of such patients uh, reflecting the phenomenology of self-defeating thoughts, uh, depressive ruminations, brain dynamics kind of shows the same patterns when their brain activity patterns are stacked in this very narrow repertoire of uh, of brain patterns so we see uh, we see some resemblance of of uh, the changes at the phenomenological level to what is happening at the level of brain dynamics and since our okay so it's uh uh it's a speculation i don't have data to support <laughs> it but i think it's reasonable to think uh that we shape our our societies are shaped by our human to human interactions uh so ultimately what's happening in our brains is one way or another is reflected in what we build in what kind of connections we form and what kind of societies we we built so for me there is nothing mystical or magical in effect uh that psychedelics or psychedelic use may be linked to more free or flexible ways of thinking uh, with the communities of people who welcome uh, liberty free speech free thinking so for me uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's not surprising If psychedelics reveal truths outside the system that challenge conventions, do we have a responsibility to integrate these truths responsi responsibly? <laughs> um, you know, um, 
there are certain things we can't prepare for, you know. Um, and uh, I, uh, I think you know I can speak for myself, you know. So there are many things that I uh, uh, I managed to prepare in my life, but there are many things that I couldn't have envisioned. Uh, and uh, I think that applies to different aspects of our life. Um, it's a very non-scientific yeah. response to your question. It's a great answer. Uh, uh, but I mean, uh, I don't mean to bring extra political tone to our conversation, but my, my, um, my friends in Sweden asked me a day before the invasion whether I think it's going to happen. And I said, well, it, there is no way. <laughs> uh so um i my honest answer is i don't know um i think in my personal belief and my personal opinion that there is more danger in suppressing opinions suppressing free conversation especially in an ever-changing world we are currently living in so i think there is more danger in being overly rigid and inflexible uh, that's where I personally stand. And I think if anything, nowadays we would benefit more from, uh, from a, a plurality and dialogue of opinions, uh, and most importantly, patience, forgiveness and respect. Yeah, that's really well said. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I... It's fascinating that study between the Palestinians and the the Israeli. Like it's so like, you know, I don't really believe in coincidences, and it's weird that that just happened not too long ago, and then this happens now. It's like the world's talking to us in a way, like, "Hey, dummies, look at this!" You know, yes. it's so crazy to me. I just do, do psychedelics reveal objective truths or oh, i'm sorry i already asked you this one Nate. how do we nurture individual autonomy of thought while avoiding fractures and shared understanding of reality that enable manipulation uh that's a valid point right so if right. you think okay uh you give everyone the tools to express themselves freely to tell whatever the hell they want on, uh, on social media <laughs> And then those who control the data flows, um, definitely there is an asymmetry in uh, things that different people can do with these freedoms. Um, I wish I had a good answer to that. And uh, I will try to think out loud. Okay, please. Um, in my opinion, uh, in, uh, in many aspects of our lives, um, in um, science specifically, you know, since I belong to the scientific community, uh, currently there is a certain amount of monopoly of thinking, even though the uh, rationale behind creation of universities was the exact that thing to promote free thinking and, um, and the dialogue of opinions. Uh, I am... Um, it saddens me to say that, unfortunately, this is not the case nowadays. Uh, there is no plurality of dialogues in, in science, unfortunately, currently. 
Uh, there are ways to address this, uh, to, you know, say to facilitate open dialogues, to uh, provide, you know, this umbrella of open science, to, uh, to give people platforms to disseminate the research at other places other than some of the peer review journals. Uh, I don't think it solves the problem completely uh, because, I mean, still, uh, of course, when it comes to how uh, your peers, the society will treat information that is published in one, you know, in one paper or another is largely determined by a reputation of a particular journal. And, you know, having your paper accepted in a, um, in a respected journal is largely de uh, determined by uh, not only the quality of your research, mm -hmm. but also whether what you found aligns with the current sentiment that is existing, uh, whether, well, what kind of organization you belong to. And uh, well, unfortunately, this is the reality that we that we have to deal with. So how to address this? Uh, in my opinion, um, there must be more platforms facilitating free speech. Uh, I'll give you an example. Please. Um, one of the coolest and uh, in my opinion, well, most valuable paper for me personally was the paper that we published last year on global societal dynamics and relation between uh, um, economic and some of the global societal processes like unemployment rates, housing prices and well-being. And uh, I preprinted that paper. You know, I, I wanted to get some early comments on that, and it produced some. It wasn't a pleasant experience. Let's let, let's put it this way. So I'm I'm not trying to kind of say that yes, you know, I I suffered a lot from that. No, not for that matter. But you know, it definitely made me think that well, maybe next time I'm not going to preprint this paper uh, because of the negativity that you know that we got. Now this paper is published in a decent yeah. journal, uh, but it wasn't a pleasant experience, you know. But um, even with all the challenges, with all the unfairness and, uh, and difficult conversations, different and really nasty comments that uh, we read sometimes on Twitter back then, uh, an idea of censoring this conversation never crossed my mind. Uh, okay, I learned my lesson, and next time I will not preprint the paper uh, before it is accepted. You know, yes, it was painful. <laughs> you know, there are different ways of learning, right? So yeah. <laughs> I, I like to give this example. I used to give that example of different kinds of learning, right? So uh, there are different ways to learn that bees can stink, right? You know, can bite you. You know, your mother told uh, tells you, you know, uh, Alex, don't touch a bee. It may, you know, may sting. Mm. Uh, and uh, or there is another way. You touch the bee, it stings, and you you never do that again. We we all know which usually works best, yeah. right? So uh, it's uh, it's an instructed learning versus learning by direct reinforcement. So you know, in that experience, I learned by direct reinforcement. And but point that I'm trying to make. So I think no matter how uncomfortable and painful 
it is to hear the opinions of people who maybe dislike you, disagree with you. Uh, they should always be a platform for free, for free speech, for communication. This free speech and communication cannot be censored because then we are down the spiral of, uh, of something way more horrible. Yeah, yeah, there's... There's something to be said about lived experience and even some of the most traumatic experiences can be the ones we learn the most from. I mean, you could argue that suffering is the one thing we all have in common, right? It's yes. In, in whether it's, you know, people that lost a child or people that lose a loved one or some sort of traumatic event, you see the most unlikely characters sometimes holding hands and crying because they've been through the same thing together. They could be diametrically opposed about everything, but it's the suffering that we share. It's... Yes, it's a very controversial statement by Carl Jung. <clears throat> and yeah, also worth mentioning that I, I grew up and developed as a uh, as a hardcore neuroscientist, you know, working with brain imaging and uh, cognitive neuroscience, uh, reinforcement learning. But I did my own analysis uh, in the Jungian framework. So I... Uh, <laughs> I underwent my own psychoanalysis in the Jungian framework. For me, that was very important for, I would say, forming my own point of view on uh, on the way I perceive, uh, approach my life and, and science in particular. Hmm. There is a controversial statement uh, by Carl Jung. And, you know, it's very easy to, to say it, I think. But, you know, with the examples that you gave, you can see why it can be considered as controversial by some. Uh, he once stated that the foundation of all psychiatric or mental illnesses, uh, for that matter, is the unwillingness to experience legitimate suffering. Mm. It's a powerful and difficult statement. Um, um, I... Uh, I can say on a personal level uh, that I see some truth in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it is powerful to say. It's, you know, sometimes if you look at like the DSM, you know, you can, you can see that on some level as a manifestation of the problems of society, like whether it's an eating disorder or it's a, an anger, misplaced anger or something like that. These all seem like as symptoms of a society that is sickened, you know, not so much the individual's problem, but it's just the symptom manifesting through them as like we're a giant super organism or something. To support your argument, there have been some studies looking into quality of life of people suffering from major psychiatric disorders, uh, from psychosis spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an important clarification. And in the societies that are not very industrialized, uh, mm. relative to other peers, uh, people suffering from psychosis spectrum disorders uh, do better. Of course, at the global level, the quality of life is, of course, worse in third world countries and, you know, less industrialized countries. And, uh, of course, in the indigenous communities, right? So some of the psychosis spectrum Symptoms which are considered, you know, okay. uh, like one of the most severe conditions, uh, psychiatric conditions, they are more accept, ex, uh, they are more accepted, uh, and uh, 
Um, also, there are communities where different kinds of psychopathology or psychopathology-like traits are more accepted. Uh, accepted, you know, among artists, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I had some collaborations on the links between psychopathology and creativity. There is a story to tell about that. But yes, yeah, so in a way, um, there is no psychiatry is a peculiar beast in medicine, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, it has always been context dependent. Uh, so the way, well, even, even what we call today <clears throat> schizophrenia is very different compared to what was considered and classified as schizophrenia uh, several decades ago. You know, Krapelins, that who, who is uh, the father, uh, well, one of the godfathers of classical German psychiatry, so he coined uh, the term dementia precox uh, to describe uh, what later developed into Bloiler's schizophrenia. But point of the matter is that every psychiatric condition you take uh, has undergone tremendous transformation over the course of our history and the history of psychiatry in particular. So there is no single psychiatric condition, uh, well, maybe with an exception of some rather neurological conditions like Alzheimer's hmm. that did not undergo, that hasn't undergone massive transformation in terms of classification. So every every psychiatric condition, and I, I dare to say mental health in general is very context dependent and what we consider as, um, as norm or pathology has also evolved over time. And uh, in a way, the mental health crisis is a um, is a reflection of something bigger and is very dependent on the state that mm. uh, of the of the society that we live in. You know, I, I have a question about mechanism of action. I spoke with Brian Roth a while back, and he was sharing some of his findings that are brilliant. But it seems to me on some level, there's way too many variables that we have no idea about. So sometimes looking for a mechanism of action is like trying to find the true name of God. Like, I, I don't think you can do it, you know? And, and so what are we doing? Like, are we ever, I mean, there's too many variables, right? Like you're not going to find out what's going on, are you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. What do you think? Uh, yeah, well, I, um, I've been contemplating a lot on different ways of looking at mechanism of action of psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy for that matter. Um, and uh, well, there are some things that we see consistently happening on the neurobiological, okay. neurophysiological system level, right? You know, like I mentioned some of the changes in the, in the high level networks of right. the brain. Uh, changes in the repertoire of brain dynamics, kind of shifting the modes of the brain activity to the to the states that are opposite to what we sometimes see in people suffering from major psychiatric conditions. Uh, there are obvious effects on uh, learning, social learning in particular, neurobiological mm -hmm. plasticity that we know. Uh, but does it capture the entire uh, repertoire of what psychedelics are capable to do? I don't think so. Uh, there are multiple interpretations of how psychedelics work at the individual or psychological level and uh, 
I think there is no psychological school, you know, to which psychedelics do not fit. Uh, at the early days, uh, people were kind of questioning whether psychedelics and CBT go well together. Today, mm. we know it's one of the most commonly employed uh, methodology in clinical trials. Uh, there is a new wave of, uh, of, of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and, com and commitment. Uh, ACT is a, is a particularly attractive and popular uh, school in the context of psychedelic-assisted therapy. Uh, what I th personally think is underlooked in psychedelic research um, is the aspect of psychedelics action that is very hard to measure. Uh, I'd like to give an example of a uh, substance addict who I have known personally. It's been a while since, since, since we met. Uh, but he, after a single psychedelic experience, he managed to stop a long-term heroin addiction. Wow. A, uh, and uh, so during the experience, he saw how he is injecting venom into his body, how the body is rotting, decomposing. Uh, that dramatically, well, and, yeah, I mean, on the directly after he cried uh, yeah. and uh, yeah. within a day making a decision to transform his life, you know, started exercising, eating healthy. And uh, we, how many years we've, what was the last, when was the last time we met? But, you know, several years yeah. ago, he was still in a, in a deep remission. Uh, and uh I mean, if you ask a heroin addict, of course, everyone understands that, you know, it's destroying their body. Uh, you know, it's it's bad for them, for their community, for their families. But the meaning enhancing properties of psychedelics yes. is something that we don't have so far very good tools to evaluate. So I was once privileged to be a reviewer of one of the papers on that exact topic by invitation from Rick Strassman. Um, yeah. And um, I do think that it's one of the most interesting and attractive aspects of psychedelic action that we don't pay enough attention to. I think that's, because uh, I mean, right now, I think with all the, I mean, I think uh, we won't have enough fingers to count all the crises, <laughs> crises, I, I think that's yeah. the right way to, to put it, that we have right now. But I think uh, as much as there is an economic trust uh, crisis, a mental health crisis, there is a crisis of meaning. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think this kind of research and that angle on psychedelics becomes particularly relevant. And uh, I don't think it's only about psychedelics, right? Psychedelics are some of the tools that we have. Right. Uh, but in general, uh, the ignorance of mental health and science related to mental health for that matter to the meaning uh, is something that may underlie some of the challenges that we are facing in my opinion and so uh, yes I agree with you there are so many ways of looking at psychedelics my personal opinion despite being a neuroscientist brain imaging researcher data scientist I think this is where 
where we need to to pay attention. This is what we need to pay attention to. I love it. You know, I, when you said that, it seems to me the in the in the most difficult part of the trip or the most which are sometimes the most meaningful parts when you see the actual event happening and you know it's wrong. Is that the manifestation of neuroplasticity in real time? Like that's your brain rewiring itself in real time when you have that difficult experience, it seems like, right? Or I'm, I don't know. You think so? Uh, to be fair, we don't have data to actually demonstrate <laughs> that. Uh, that would be interesting to see. Um, I think so, yeah. Um, I... Um, yeah, that's interesting because what we consistently see in uh, neurophysiology, in neurophenomenology for that matter, is that often uh, the phenomenological, the, the phenomenology of an experience often mirrors what's happening in the patterns of brain dynamics. And yep. uh, so that wouldn't surprise me. And uh, um, that's an interesting hypothesis to test. I think that would be that would be an interesting thing to, to observe. And uh, uh can you I'm cite me when you do it? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'll make this okay, but this is exactly why the experiment where they want to try to take the, the difficult part of the trip, taking the difficult part out of the trip is taking the neuroplasticity out of the trip. If if that hypothesis is true, right? It's not work. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, also, <laughs> as you know, there is, there is some research going on trying to take the uh, psychedelic part out of the right, psychedelic right. action. And... Uh, my personal opinion on that is uh, humble curiosity. Love it. Uh, that's, uh, well, th I, I think that's a healthy attitude that I have. I mean, if that's the case, I think that's that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you ask me, do I think that psychedelics are good tools for everyone? No, I don't think so. I think there are probably people conditions to you know where psychedelics in especially in the wrong context can do more harm than than good you know for instance people experiencing acute trauma mm. uh, so my personal stance is that that's where one has to be particularly careful introducing extra crisis like state or extraplastic state when there is already some profound transformations perhaps going on and people are processing that um, I mean, there are other tools, you know, like MDMA, for example, yeah. that has been shown to be good for processing trauma. But you know, that's uh, that's perhaps a story for another conversation. But what I um, I wanted to say is that there are aspects where where we need to be wary of how we how we introduce psychedelics. Um, yes, and. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if that answers the question it that does. you. It's that, beautiful. Yes. In your view, is the experience of meaning a byproduct of changes induced by psychedelics or the core driver of their therapeutic benefits? Um, to be fair, right? So this question, the way you post it, uh, it assumes the duality, right? Uh, the mm. uh, experience and 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 biology. Um, and uh, there are different ways, right, of looking at the mind-brain relationship that I briefly touched upon in the beginning, yeah. right? So uh, sort of from a um, from a conceptual level, right? So we, you know, there are there are points on 
on panpsychistic you know their their panpsychistic views right that uh consciousness is a uh, uh, universal uh, yeah is a universe is a characteristic is a fundamental characteristic of the universe or the matter and there is a emergentism uh, that states that well uh, there should be a certain state of a matter and which well some properties that were not present in the its elements start to manifest and one example is a liquidity of water right mm -hmm. so there is no liquidity mm -hmm. in in water molecules it's the way they interact uh mm -hmm. makes the uh, bigger system to manifest novel properties and uh there are uh um there are reasons to believe that that could be the case for some of the uh, phenomena like consciousness and uh i've been a part of several discussions on consciousness on experience uh in my opinion very often these discussions stumble upon poor definitions Mm -hmm. um uh that a lot of discussions go nowhere because uh the participants um talk about consciousness in different terms uh right uh and uh, also when it comes to emergentism emergent uh th there are different ways you know there are different emergent phenomena right so, so the so-called hard emergence or soft emergence uh so say if you if you ask uh, a, I don't know, a panpsychist, well, do you really think that a table on which my laptop stands is conscious? And, you know, he or she would, well, of course not. I mean, yes, uh, well, it probably has some characteristics of what we call the proto-consciousness, for example, but the system <laughs> is not complex enough to be self-aware and to defend a dissertation in neuroscience, for that matter, right? And on the other hand, some of the emergentists would say, would talk about the proto-consciousness, elements say you know uh perhaps liquidity is present as a potential energy and you know in the water molecules as a possibility for manifestation for that matter so the point that i'm trying right. to make right so it's a it's a very long intro <laughs> to the answer that i'm about to give is that uh you know this question assumes that uh well there is a dualistic and uh, causal relationship between mind and matter and you know the changes that are happening uh and uh the point that i wanted to make that's also an assumption right so we don't really uh, know uh what's causing what we know that some of the things that are happening happening in parallel uh well you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation uh right so you did not refer to that term specifically uh but you correct me if i'm wrong you were kind of getting there about the synchronicities you know yep. linking the uh the current global events and the studies with psychedelic yep. so a point that i'm making i think it's uh, i think on the questions when uh we don't have enough data to support a particular causal link it's best to remain agnostic and welcome different ways of looking at it uh uh, I think my, if you're asking my personal opinion, I think the changes in the meaning that are happening and what we observe at the biological level are different sides of the same coin. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. It's thanks. Thank you for the answer. I it's, it's a fascinating concept and it's fun to talk about. And I, I love this idea of meaning and, and, 
psychedelics and transformation and language and behavior. Like it's, it's just a fascinating topic, all of them. And yes. what could virtual reality simulations of meaningful psychedelic experiences provide similar benefits without ingesting substances in your opinion? Um, I do think that, uh, there are other ways to bring transformative changes to people's life, to people's psyche, without psychedelic, without ingesting any right. substances. Uh, for example, uh, I got exposed to, to, to breath work very early mm. uh, in um, when studying psychiatry, and like that was a very brief exposure. And to be fair, I was fairly skeptical about okay. it. Uh, but later on, when you know, when I when I really did it with a with an experienced instructor, uh, I understand that it has a tremendous capacity for transformation. And you know, needless to say, other kinds of practices. Uh, I mean, my a part of my life journey has been martial arts mm. uh, that I've been that have been a part of my life since I was five, and definitely uh, that's a very important part that helped me to see myself better, to learn about myself through my opponents. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's uh, also a, uh, something that brings a lot of transformation right. to my life. So, and in that sense, to answer your question, I think, yes, whether it's a virtual reality, I have a, a good colleague, you know, working on a startup in Sweden, specifically trying to emulate or just leverage virtual reality for mental health. I think it has a lot of premise. There are obvious use cases that are already at place, like exposure therapy for phobias. Mm. Uh, to what extent they can actually reproduce a um, psychedelic experience, I don't know. And I'm not even sure if that's what needs to be done, you know? Because yes, there are ways to influence brain dynamics with stimulation, mm. and we are getting better and better at it. Um, uh, there is some controversy around uh, the magnetic stimulation to what extent it can mm, actually alter brain right. dynamics but uh, I mean there are good reasons to believe that it is possible on some conditions and uh, I think definitely virtual reality even without stimulation have the capacity to alter our mental states I mean sounds can alter our mental yeah. state exposure to nature can alter mental states uh so yes to answer your question i think it is also an interesting technology that has future for for our well-being and mental health uh, like any technology we just need to be mindful of how we leverage them uh but i am rather positive uh as long as every technology yeah. we employ we we approach with respect and um, and 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 um and care yeah it's interesting to think about how it seems that for it seems that there's a pretty big medical container around psychedelics, but possibly in the future, I could see an avenue for optimization, whether it's through athletes or whether it's through studying, or I, I think that there, there could be these new emergent fields where you, you can use them for more than just medical reasons, because medical is kind of a way of optimizing in itself, right? I agree with you. I agree with you. I, um, um, as I mentioned, and I think in you know uh, in the beginning of our conversation that 
the way psychedelics have been used historically is very different mm -hmm. com compared to how yeah. we treat them right now. Uh, right now, in most of the clinical trials, we are talking about a setting consisting of one patient, two therapists, even though at this stage, it's probably or used to be justified for, for research matter. It's a very un unnatural way of approaching a psychedelic experience and virtually all the communities and historical use we can discover, whether that being you know historical references or what's happening, what we have now in some of the indigenous communities of South America, for example, right. it has always been a group experience, a communal experience embedded into the very fabric of culture, community, uh, families. And uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I attended a men's circle retreat for the yeah. first time in my life. I've nice. never done that. Um, but I also have a community of, uh, of you know, jujitsu that I've been practicing for a very mm. long time. That's also a very strong community. And uh, I do think that uh, at some point, that would be curious to see how psychedelics or any transformative experiences yeah. for that matter, not necessarily substance assisted or, or well, anything that entails ingesting uh, any mind altering substance in general transformative experience. And that retreat was, you know, was, did not entail any, any intake. So that was a purely conversational uh, body practice type retreat. Um, I think that definitely strength strengthens the bones that people form and yeah. uh, something that has been yeah. that has been a long overdue in uh, in the way uh, we function as a society at large yeah it's there's a sort of oneness people speak about through psychedelics and most a lot of the times on psilocybin it seems that you become aware that at least i've spoken to lots of people who have had the epiphany that you don't come into this world, you come out of it, usually on a high-dose psychedelic or psilocybin trip like this. I don't know. It's, it's this weird understanding or connection to nature and other people in some way. That is that something that you have noticed in, in, in working with them? Yes. Um, so the study that I would love to run at some point is to see the relationship between quality of experiences and uh, the connection to nature. You mm -hmm. know, there are studies showing that very simple simulation, hearing sounds of nature, looking at patterns of mm. nature makes a difference on your mental states. Mm. Um, uh, well, needless to say, there are some studies happening at my university uh, showing that the place you live in uh, defined in the greenness index that you can extract from Google Maps, right? So you know how much exposure to nature you have on daily basis is very delicately and closely linked to your well-being and a number of other well-being related aspects of your life. Uh, there are, of course, there are a number of confounders, right? Your income, uh, your origin, but uh, well, the more data we collect, the more clear it becomes that connection to nature is very good for all aspects of our life. And right now at the university that I belong to, we have like in-house gardens, uh, yeah. uh, you know, there are trees inside. So, well, uh, we are figuring it out and it becomes crystal clear that 
uh, it's very unnatural for human beings to separate ourselves from nature, you know, in this stone jungle. So the yeah. and we, not, we need to find a balance how to bring our connection to nature back. And in that regard, it's very interesting to contemplate on on uh, on psychedelics in this context, right? So what we yeah. know very well about psychedelics is that they are making people tremendously sensitive. You know, what we were discussing in the beginning about different aspects of our perception of our life. Mm. And uh, well, of course, in the indigenous communities, uh, psychedelic experiences are also part of connecting to nature. Uh, so of course, every culture, and I would argue every every culture, you know, it's just some cultures kept this link and other cultures yeah. uh, forgot this link. There was that thread connecting non-ordinary states of consciousness to, to nature, uh, whether that being uh, the spiritual realm of nature, right. whether that being the general idea that uh, nature is a natural healer. So uh, that was the classical approach to medicine, you know, in ancient Greece, right? So mm -hmm. doctors communicate, communicate with nature to provide, to open up a possibility for nature to heal. So this, I would say this has been around and understood by scholars, by, by society for, for, for many years. And uh, I do think it's a very important aspect of uh, action of psychedelics and in general, the lost connection to nature uh, is something that in my personal opinion is dangerous to ignore. It, great points. And it brings up a fascinating question about language. You know, when, when you look back at some of the history textbooks and they, they ask some of the indigenous tribes, how did you figure out how to make ayahuasca? Oh, the plants told us. You know, when we start talking, Jeremy Narby has a great book um, yes. called The Cosmic Serpent, right? Love Oof, it. Love this book. Phenomenal. They talk about understanding the antidote to this snake is by, oh, the, the plants tell us. And the, the anthropologist is like, well, what do you mean? And isn't it incredible that, you know, yeah. he started as a, you know, as a, as a hardcore Western anthropologist. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I love this book too. Uh, yes. So, so, on some level, is it possible that maybe like some of the psychedelics, like or maybe some of the entheogens, are like exogenous neurotransmitters that allow us to communicate with nature? Is that too far out there? Um, I mean, classical <laughs> psychedelics, right? So they, uh, they their molecular structure resembles uh, the one of serotonin. And right. uh, in one of the conversations with one of my colleagues, uh, you know, we kind of joked, yeah, I mean, we're all tripping on serotonin. Right. And uh, yes, there are, as I mentioned, there are different ways of to alter our perception. But ultimately, yes, you know, the way we perceive reality is determined yeah. to a large extent. Uh, well, the way our chemistry functions. And uh, I mean, it's... There is nothing magical or mystical in the fact that what's <laughs> happening in our brain dynamics is very delicately and closely linked to the way we perceive reality. And um, yes, yeah, so we know that uh, at the constrained con uh, cognition, we perceive a very, yeah. very narrow 
yeah uh, aspect of our reality i don't know i don't know uh what to make out of uh, I mean, I have a lot of respect to different ways of looking at the reality, right? So I dedicate my life to study different ways of looking at the, at the reality and and uh, and interpret and 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 study how we approach different beliefs mm. and facts in different contexts. So yeah. uh, that's why when I say I respect different views on reality, I genuinely believe so. My I am a very non-religious person, but my best friend is an Orthodox priest. Mm um and uh i do think that there are different ways to to perceive reality and to to walk your own path right so there are multiple yeah. like there are multiple ways to enlightenment there are multiple ways to happiness to 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 healthy and um an authentic life uh and uh as long as the world view a particular world yes. world view does not entail any uh, destructive activities or obviously harmful activities for others uh i think it's healthy to be inclusive um and uh and you know actually when i say about right about potential links to some dangerous activities again full disclosure this uh this point of view has been questioned by by many anthropologists right so the way we look at some of the indigenous or uh hist historical accounts of some indigenous cultures like aztecs hmm. it's important that this history that we know is mostly written by people mm -hmm. who obviously had a conflict of interest right yeah. uh and uh they picture a very bloody society of aztecs you know the society ruled by uh, by really scary, bloody rituals, and which psychedelics played arguably a massive role, right? So the uh, the uh, the emperor of Aztecs allegedly interacted with uh, with gods by means of uh, of psychedelics, um, and uh, so that was, uh, according to some accounts, uh, uh, a um, a society. That was very harsh according to our standards. Uh, so the point that I'm 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 trying to make is that uh, there are different ways to perceive right. and form the picture of reality, and uh, some of the ways of perceiving reality uh, may look very bizarre and horrible in the in the eyes of a of a 21st century Westerner. Whereas, you know, probably if you if you tell Aztecs or uh, I don't know any indigenous communities who lived in uh, in 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 America, I don't know several centuries ago about the way we are living now, uh, they would probably think that we're all we all gone mad. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of Orwell's quote where he says, "He who controls." He who controls the future controls the past. Yes. And he who controls the past controls the present, right? History yes. history is is all bullshit, it seems like. You know, it's I don't know. It's it's crazy to think about maybe that's my conspiratorial thinking and my nonconformist attitude of but but on some level, I think looking at history is a great way for people to begin to form their own opinions. And you need look no further than the calendar. Like, why is October 
the 10th month when oct is the first part of it why is december the 12th month when deck you know what i mean like yes. all of a sudden you're like something doesn't add up here yes <laughs> yes i mean yeah there, there are many things i agree with you uh on i mean i do think that well there is a right a, a famous quote those who cannot remember the past are condemned Doom to repeat it yes yeah well said. uh yeah, uh, but I do think that when it comes to approaching something like even hardcore facts, right? Uh, it is important to be open, yeah, to different opinions. And uh, well, one of my teachers in psychiatry, when presenting some of the findings, uh, put it beautifully, uh, specifically pertaining to the specialty, to my specialty, right? So he said. Uh, to me, a qualification and professionalism of a psychiatrist to a very large extent is determined by the ability to calmly and respectfully listen an opinion that one disagrees with. Mm. And I think that uh, that is applicable to any aspects yeah. of, of our life. That's I'm going to I'm going to remember that. That's beautiful. I think it speaks volumes. You mentioned in one of your studies that psychedelics may help rewrite negative thought patterns. Could they also unintentionally overwrite positive patterns or moral foundations? I, um, well, um, I can only speculate, right? So I, sure. I, I think um, there is that sentiment around psychedelics, right? That they only bring, uh, you know, love and and positivity uh i am not sure uh, i'm not sure um among psychedelic users i have encountered um i encounter different people um i think there is a um there is a great risk of treating psychedelics like a, a spiritual bypass mm -hmm. or an mm -hmm. excuse of not doing your work, so to speak. And yeah. uh, um, I mean, I, um, of course, psychedelics played uh, an important role in my life, you know, not only as a sure. research, uh, but also as a, as a, as a personal experience. Uh, but I, uh, I wouldn't diminish the importance of the of of, of uh, personal work yeah. that that everyone needs to do. You know, like uh, Alan Watts saying, you know, you got the message, hang up the phone. Uh, <laughs> but you know, to answer your question directly, I do think that uh, they can change patterns uh, yeah. of thinking. They can change beliefs, and uh, I don't think it's necessarily always for the good. Uh, that's why it's uh, very important to do that in the right context, right? So, for example, because people are becoming very yeah. sensitive and, you know, sometimes during psychedelic experiences, people may confront very challenging thoughts patterns. You know, some people yeah. may remember or think that they remember real facts from their life whereas they may not be the real facts, yep. uh, but they may be very traumatizing or re-traumatizing for some people. And uh, 
that's why it is very important to know how to process this information because if some of these challenging experiences are left unprocessed i do think that they can inflict harm on people's lives and uh, uh influence potentially potentially damaging patterns of people's behavior and uh and may even have uh bad consequences for mental health and well-being of people and, and all those around them. It's interesting to think about patterns and behavior. And, you know, there's a great, great book by Marshall McLuhan called The Gutenberg Galaxy. And he talks about how typography fundamentally changed the way we see model reality. It gave us ideas like exact repeatability and, and, and things like this. And the, the, one of the premise of the books is that the, the printing press changed our sense ratios as human beings. Yes. And in, in a strange way, it seems that psychedelics may be doing the same thing. Like we're, we're able, like, if you just think about shifting your sense ratios a little bit, that ch fundamentally changes the way you can model reality. Like, I, yes. I, I think that's a fascinating thing to think about. What, do you think that's plausible? Uh, I do think that psychedelics may dramatically transform the way we perceive reality, yes. Right. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I almost dare to say they will do that, you know, because, yeah. uh, because, uh, the genie is out of the bottle now. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I, I uh, well, because of the uh, of the effects of of, of yeah. these substances and this experience, it's uh, it's very hard to ignore uh, and very hard to to shut it down. I mean, we had a history of that happening. Yes, um, there are different opinions on uh, why it happened, um, but I mean, to answer your question, yes, I think it's almost inevitable, and. Uh, to what extent it's actually again the effect of psychedelics or it's just right uh, psychedelics came at the right moment in history i don't have yeah. i don't have the answer uh i have a um, a good colleague working in the drug addiction clinic mm -hmm. in mexico uh, with iboga and uh we've been discussing a lot of the problem of addiction you know and different experiences that uh that people undergoing different kinds of treatments for addiction uh, were having and uh, an interesting observation that he made so i i also observed that and you know in some medical practice that i had uh but uh, well to be fair that was him who kind of coined that and i fully agree with that that quite often he said it's uh, not necessarily the quality of the experience during a session that determines the outcome. The best changes that he said we observed and most durable changes that we observed, he said, were mostly happening in people who had to undergo a lot of things before getting to the clinic. You know, mm. coming from a different side of the world, uh, you know, sometimes having challenging situations just to be able to visit the clinic, yeah. uh, 
trying different kinds of treatments, really fighting for that, you know, putting a lot of personal efforts into that, having supportive family. And for them, a uh, an Ibogaine experience was just a final tipping point that mm. they needed. Um, that was just a part of a large path that they that they walked that just came in the right moment and in the right place uh and you know perhaps perhaps that's what's currently happening and maybe psychedelics is just uh, a potential part of this story uh i you know uh, i personally think psychedelics are powerful tools but i mean yeah, I ended up building my own startup in Sweden, working with Dreams, for example, primarily, right? So, and uh, I do think there is a transformative power of non-ordinary states of consciousness that our society came to ignore for too for too long. Uh, that being a psychedelic experience, that being a realm of dreams, that being the realm of other kinds of non-ordinary states of consciousness, and uh, I think it's our Okay, it's my uh, perhaps job now and uh, in a way a responsibility to to figure out what we can make out of it and uh, and humbly do my part on on uh, on what I can do on this matter. But to answer your question, I uh, I do think uh, non ordinary states of consciousness in general have a tremendous capacity for shifting the way we interact, the way we connect with each other, with nature, and the way we shape our reality together. I've noticed a trend. I, I was speaking a while back with Dr. Erica Dick, and she was mentioning some of the ways in the late 50s and 60s when they were working with, with patients, they had a way of measuring subjectivity that seems to be absent today. And they would use questionnaires with you know, most it was mostly men they were working with, but they would go to the wife and be like, is your husband more or less of an asshole now? You know, but they would find ways to incorporate the family and in and, and real subject, like subjective, but like mattering subjective. I see it and I kind of, I don't know if I'm will, willing this to happen or I'm seeing trends or, but is that, can we get more of that going forward? Or do you think that designing that into studies would be beneficial? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I wanted to say, well, first, I do think it's very relevant to take into yes. account the subjective aspect of, uh, of people's perception. And I think there is a danger of taking the person who is in suffering out of the equation when talking about mental health. It's bizarre, <laughs> right? Uh, to be fair, there is a trend, uh, there is an existing trend uh, in, um, in uh, mental health research to bring back the subjectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, some of the scales that we are using today, I mean, for a long time, one of the most popular scales uh, to evaluate depression was Hamilton depression scale, which is usually mm -hmm. evaluated primarily. The most emphasis is put on a psychiatrist doing the evaluation. Uh, now, one of the most popular, popular scales is quits that uh, is primarily a subjective scale. Uh, and right now, we are bringing back the importance of subjective re reports about evaluating our own mental health, our take on that. Uh, personally, uh, I am, uh, I, in my opinion, the subjectivity of evaluation and particularly questionnaire-based assessment is a double-edged sword. So I think 
Um, I'm not, well, to, to be like bluntly upfront, I'm not a fan of questionnaire-based assessments. Right, right. Uh, I think quite often your behavioral patterns can tell more about mm. mental health than what you say in a morning following sleepless night or, I don't know, a, an argument with your girlfriend or whatever after after a sickness. The point that I'm trying to make, uh, for example, we know that the amount of time people spend outdoors, you know, number just like very simple measure number of steps is very mm. closely linked to, you know, to how well we are doing, what kind of food we consume, what kind of what kind of stuff we are buying, right? you know, uh, how we interact with people, what kind of language. So you, you mm, mentioned about language yeah. we use in our interactions, right? So there was a study that linked uh, the usage of self-referential speech patterns mm. and the, the amount of time you spend talking with self-referencing is linked to poor, poor outcomes of mental health. Uh, and uh, and that's true again. So bringing yeah. back to the points that we discussed previously, right? So the the rumination, the self-defeating thoughts, this self-centeredness, which is also reflected in the patterns of brain dynamics, is also reflected in the way we communicate, the way we talk. So my personal opinion is that ultimately, of course, you know, it's important to have this broader aspect of mental health you know right so it's a personal mental health the state of of the family i mean yeah speaking about kids right so yeah. quite often uh what the symptoms that a child is manifesting is not a um is not only a symptom of a child in the vast majority of cases if not all the cases that's the symptom of a family yeah i'm not trying to say yes that's uh the the families and the parents' responsibility for the only for the children's mental health. But the point that I'm making that mental health expands beyond personal well-being, personal brain dynamics, personal reflections. It's always a, uh, a reflection and, and also very context dependent. Uh, so my personal opinion is that there will be, or I think there must be, a trend towards contextualizing mental health in different mm. occasions, you know, thinking, for example, in what context a person with a certain characteristics, I mean, so say, uh, I, I like to give an example on ADHD, right? You know, have okay. a person, you have two people with the same magnitude of symptoms and you can kind of evaluate the presence of ADHD symptoms by some scales. So and one person is a, is an athlete Another person is an office worker. One would get a diagnosis and the other one would not because they live in very different contexts with very different demands, with very different focuses uh, in their life. Uh, and uh, so I do think that in general, not only the context of partners, but in general, the broader context of the mental health that the person is living in is very important for, for determining, for also for helping people to live, you know, to, to take care of their well-being better, but when it comes to the uh, to the use of technology in the assessment, um, I do think that uh, there is already an existing trend of uh, for leveraging 
uh, natural language processing to get information from natural behavioral patterns, from natural speech on how people are doing. Um, yes, and also, you know, there was, I don't know if you, if you know, there is, there was a recent study uh, based on Compass Pathways data from a clinical trial that evaluated uh, with leveraging natural language processing of interactions, patient, patient uh, therapist interactions, and they objectively, uh, with, techno with te technological tools, detected that uh, you know what we've known for quite a while, right? That the the rapport, the personal contact that the therapist has with the patient is tremendously important for outcomes, and. Uh, so it's interesting that the study is actually coming from uh, from a company representing the pharma pharmaceutical players in the psychedelic space, right? And uh, uh, but again, so it shows objectively leveraging modern technology that the therapy part, or okay, so for that matter, the personal connection part. Okay, so I'm not I'm not here to say that the only way of approaching psychedelics is through full-on therapy. But at least you know we know that the personal, the subjective, the subjective aspect of treatment, of the way people establish their connection with the therapist with each other, is very important for 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 the treatment outcomes. So this this brings back the idea of of the indigenous ceremony and rites of passage. And if you find yourself in a heightened state of awareness and there's an elder who's already been through it, and maybe your younger brother who's looking up to you to see you go through it for the first time, like that's a tremendous container of learning right there. We're real, you know, you, you, you have everything you need. You have the old version of you and the younger version of you, you know, and you, and there you are right in the middle, like depending on which one you are, but man, that's, it's such a, just hearing the idea of speech patterns makes me think about life patterns, makes me think about evolution. Like I really, I, I think it would be fascinating to do some studies on, on the way in which psychedelic ceremonies and consumption of psychedelics have different outcomes in those settings. Right. It's, it's mind blowing, man. I agree. <laughs> For me, another aspect that has been largely ignored or under investigated, let's put it this way is uh, interpersonal dynamics during such interventions or shared experience and how it is related to the outcomes of, uh, of, of work with psychedelics. Because I do think it's my hypothesis, let's put it this way, that the bonds and the interpersonal connection that is formed during such interventions is very important. And uh, I think there are good reasons why psychedelics are used in the communal setting. Yeah. And to me specifically, uh, I mean, we were running a company uh, organizing this, you know, harm reduction services in, in the Netherlands. And that was a ceremonial setting, you know, we, uh, so that was, the company was started by four medical doctors and we were working with uh, traditional space holders uh, who started work with, you know, with, uh, with uh, this medicinal substances for, for many years and the indigenous communities just to be able to facilitate your own yeah. ceremonies you have to uh you have to uh help out at the ceremonies for about 10 years you need to right. study that and uh so it has always been done in a in a in a communal context and i think that's uh that's something that has a tremendous healing potential this interpersonal connection 
that has been lost in current mental yeah. health that is quite often largely indifferent to what happens to to a psychiatric patient what he or she gets discharged there are exceptions of course sure. uh but you know when i was doing my residency in psychiatry in uh, in russia i said i mean you can i'm quite sure you can teach a monkey to prescribe uh antidepressants you know and, uh, <laughs> But what what is really important is to communicate to a patient, you know, what happens next, you know, uh, where they can get help, how they can get support, uh, how they can navigate, mm. especially if they're suffering from uh, from a major psychiatric condition, uh, how they can get help, how they can build their life, you know, uh, in the light of challenges that they are that they're facing and they are in the light of their personal characteristics that they have how they can find the right context and in which they can live a healthy life so that's what is challenging and that's what we so far haven't been very successful on yeah well, i my grandpa used to say if you want a new idea read a really old book you know and sometimes it's just like looking back to the people that have been doing this before us like oh we lost our way right here. Okay, let's go back, you know, or maybe this is what we're missing. It's I agree. I agree. <laughs> my favorite book on psychiatry, and I read a lot of books on neuropsychiatry, but my favorite and most transformative book for me as a professional in mental health uh, was uh, General Psychopathology by Carl Jaspers. Uh, Carl Jaspers was a classical German psychiatrist. He's a, he's an, he was an interesting character, so he kind of, He's a recognized classic in um, in uh, in psychiatry, but also a recognized classic in existential philosophy. Um, so the book that he wrote um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a it's a massive book. Um, right. uh, it's one of the probably biggest books in in psychiatry. It's mostly on phenomenology of a wide variety of of um of psychopathological experiences but it also has a massive section on methodology of what we study the psyche mental health uh what are the traps that we can get into when trying mm. to over explain uh phenomenology by means of neuroscience by means of biology and physiology so that has been a very influential book for me. And uh, I still believe that was probably the most important book in psychiatry for me. Yeah, and it, it was written in the beginning of 20th century, just in the, in the foundation of more during the, uh, when the, when the modern psychiatry was just trying to find its, its own place in the medicine. It's fascinating to think of. I, you know, as we spoke about speech patterns earlier, and you know, sometimes in the heightened states of awareness, you'll see these radical geometric shapes sometimes, you know, and, and whether it's a three-dimensional pyramid or some sort of geometrical anomaly, you're like, wow, what is that? Is that possible? Do you think that that has something to do with language? Is that like on some level, because there's also the same aspect of the ineffable. Like you can't bring back in language what happened to you at times, but you can almost bring back the idea of that image. Do you think that that those images that you see in language are somewhat connected? 
Um, well, there are studies, right, that would uh, investigate effects on on of psychedelic on perception of uh, symmetry. Uh, mm. And as you, as you mentioned, there was some systematic research done on on um, on specifically perception of these patterns of edges, uh, geometric mm. shapes. Um, and uh, well, because of what we discussed, right? So the psychedelic state is a mode of very unconstrained co cognition. And in terms mm -hmm. of perception, um, well, what we know is that uh, there is some resemblance of these patterns to the way our visual cortex is structured. So uh, when, uh, let's put it this way, the lower level uh, brain system become more engaged into the activity during these states. So there is more place of uh, the basic aspects of our perception and the way we deal with the reality. And we know mm. for, you know, for, for, for many years, you know, uh, there was a belief that we are just passive receivers of, uh, of reality, right? You know, that uh, we are just the observers, which is clearly not the truth. <laughs> so the amount of feed forward projections uh, to higher perceptual networks of, all, of the brain is for for you know for many regions is larger than the uh, than the receiving end of it right so we constantly our brain and uh, our cognition for that matter but let's you know let's speak in terms of uh, of the of the cognitive neuroscience our brain uh, as actually one stated by Carl Friston is the inference machine constantly making predictions about reality right you know you step on a non-moving escalator on your and your body immediately tries to readjust even though right. you see with your own eyes that it's not moving so our brain constantly makes predictions about what's coming next you know that's uh, related to some of the biases that we form that's related to different aspects of life and it's important component because there are so many things happening in our perception and it's one way or another we form the model of our world right. and uh uh, and some of the uh, signaling from low level system, low level systems, you know, from our fear circuits, from our some, you know, basic aspects of perception of reality, and our nor of, of our regular waking consciousness, these activity patterns get suppressed and filtered out from the perception, and in an unconstrained state of condition. So we see these aspects of brain activity; they are being brought back or they are being introduced to the to the mental space and uh that's what we seem to observe that's what we observe in the phenomenology and that's what people describe so it's also interesting that there are some psychedelics that are more linked to these sorts of visual phenomena like dmt for example mm. right it's known for for being associated with these patterns and uh remarkable isn't it that we see some of this DMT-like patterns in some ancient yep. cultures, in some of the uh, uh, paintings of uh, of different religious uh, places. Um, so, and I do think that, well, first, in a way, these patterns reflect, in general, the basic foundations of the way uh, our visual system is involved in building the reality or the visual aspect of reality perception. Um, and yeah, so it's, I think it's another, uh, fascinating and interesting aspect of, 
of the unconstrained cognition. You think most people have heard about uh, like Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory about how, what, what is your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, my opinion, I don't, I don't see. Okay. So I respect Terence McKenna a lot, sure. right? So he, 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 he said a lot of interesting and he was definitely a prominent and interesting figure in the space. Per my personal opinion, I don't see enough evidence for that. I mean, as someone who is open to different ideas, I find it fascinating yeah. that uh, mushrooms in a broad sense uh, have amazing properties that on some within some frameworks can be recognized as having collective intelligence. Mm, yes. Uh, that's something that fascinates me. Yeah. Whether <laughs> in some <laughs> bizarre way, it was a, uh, well, the, the, this, uh, this communion of, uh, our mammal biology and, uh, and the, uh, mushroom biology somehow manifested in a new form of cognition i don't know uh i think that's a that's a beautiful idea to contemplate on um if we find ways to actually somehow verify it i mean i am open to accepting this as a possibility if i were to speak like a scientist no i don't think we have enough evidence to claim this but i do think it's uh in general, I think uh, there are many things that we still do not understand about about species that we live so closely with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. If meaningfulness is key, should psychedelic therapy focus on guiding patients to directly cultivate it rather than just treating symptoms? Oh, uh, well, I think when it comes to working with psychedelics, it's very hard to only focus on, on symptoms that a person is manifesting, right? We can measure, and that's what we do at clinical trials, right? So a person is com uh, comes with a, with a certain symptoms of depression, we evaluate it before and after. But, uh, well, I mean, everyone who worked with psychedelics understands that, you know, even if you want to only focus on, on symptoms well good luck you know it's it's impossible you know it's like a pandora box you know you start working with psychedelics and there are more underlying things you know a person comes with addiction problem for example and uh uh well very quickly we may realize that that's just the tip of an iceberg uh uh i personally think that reframing approaches to mental health to um, I'm, for lack of a better word, I know it's a very abused term for for more holistic way of looking at our well-being and mental health, uh, uh, by which I mean, right, focusing on our uh, biology, psychology, and also spirituality is something that we need to do. Uh, and when it comes to meaning, uh, I personally stand by that so i think that meaning enhancing properties are very important and yeah. in my opinion to a very large extent to build a resilience or um sustainable well-being is a lot about finding 
meaning in the ever-changing and chaotic unpredictability of the world. Do you have any thoughts on using AI in next generation drug discovery? Uh, yes, I, um, well, yeah, there have been some attempts, right? You know, there is a, there is a massive field of, of, of computer aided drug discoveries. Right. So for example, there, I, I worked with computer aided, uh, diagnostics, image-based diagnostics. And, uh, you know, one of the papers that we published was written with, a with a good colleague of mine from the Netherlands working with uh, computer aided drug discovery. So there are different ways of looking of, of doing that. Sorry, I'm just yeah. No worries. Blind the phone. <laughs> I'm taking up a lot of your time, man. Are you okay? Oh, it's it's fine. It's fine. Yes. I'm enjoying the conversation. Me too, man. Me too. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, what was I? So I was talking about the computer-aided drug discovery and, and the role of AI in drug discovery. Yes, for sure. You know, we already see uh, this thriving. Right. Uh, we already have the first fruits of of this research, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is. Well, to that question, I can easily give a definite yes answer. So we already see it happening. Is there any speculation or is there any ideas on or potential thoughts on what a next generation psychedelic drug would be? Um, I think we have really good psychedelics already that, are, that are largely <laughs> under investigated. Um, okay, so I'm gonna give my own opinion, right? So I'm okay. and I'm I'm all pro, you know, discovering new substances. Right. There is tremendous amount of work that uh, Sasha Shulgin has done. Mm, I think yes. there is a massive amount of work we need to do just revisiting some of his fascinating yep. work. Uh, and uh, well, I uh, I talked with a colleague of mine that. Um, Actually, rediscover managed to 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 rediscover some of the uh, some of these uh, discoveries leveraging AI, uh, and uh, so with with simulation uh, leveraging genetic algorithms. Uh, but what I want to say is that there is a massive amount of stuff we still need to understand about the uh, psychedelics that are available, right? And uh, I think. Right, so what we tend to see that many synthetic, well, for example, right, so one of the most potent certain uh, energetic psychedelics is uh, uh, Bromo Dragonfly, mm. uh, which is toxic, or another another psychedelic uh, and bone, for example, right, that is that was used as a tracer does have some toxicity, whereas most of the naturally occurring psychedelics. They are ones of the least toxic substances known by humans. And, uh, well, someone, well, you know, like one way to evaluate toxicity of a substance is to divide the dose that can potentially kill you versus the dose that induces the effect that you're after, right? For caffeine, this ratio is about 60, 70. If you take 70 shots of espresso, you may die. For alcohol, it's about 10 or 12. So, you know, if a person, you know, who is not a drinker, drinks, you know, uh, one and a half liters of, uh, of strong alcohol, he or she may die. And for most of the classical psychedelics, this ratio is a matter of thousands or hundreds. Yeah. And uh, someone did an estimate of how much, how many 
dried mushrooms one needs to consume to actually inflict any physical damage and ended up uh i can't remember how to how to convert it in pounds uh but about 11 kilograms of dried wow. mushrooms uh it's uh, i don't know it's it's not feasible to consume it, right you know? so the point that i'm making um well for a very long time and uh, again so i'm coming from uh, from a country that has a history of having this mentality of building a human that is the master of nature right mm -hmm. that would domesticate nature that right. would yeah there were several projects in soviet union to turn the rivers right for the benefits of uh, you know of, of human civilization it was a massive experiment you know and i'm saying this not in a condescending way right i'm saying this as as i would talk about the massive experiment that uh that was conducted at the scale of, a, of an entire population of an entire country that we have tremendous amount of results to learn from and uh it hasn't been effective let's put it this way and uh over the course of you know of uh of our lives as a humanity we've learned that it's a dangerous game trying to outsmart nature yep and uh my personal stance is that we just need to study and uh, and comprehend that we are that we are an inseparable part of it yep. we are not the yeah. the masters the uh, the owners of nature uh we are there we, we are her children yeah i love it i i think of the alan watts line that the earth grows people like an apple tree grows apples yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty it's pretty beautiful to think about on that aspect there's been some 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 papers written i, I don't i can't cite them and, and i i don't know exactly i i don't even know if i read it in a in a medical journal but they were using 5-MeO-T to help people with Alzheimer's disease. And I, it could be anecdotal evidence. I'm not sure. Have you heard any things or, or read any published papers where they have found success using psychedelics with neurodegenerative diseases? Uh, right now, there are no systematic clinical trials that would you know, show these effects. Mm -hmm. There is one phase two clinical trial, I think, that was initiated this year was it in argentina uh maybe, yeah yeah with five omeo dmt i think mm -hmm. that's the one you're, you're you're talking about uh and uh when it comes to the uh preclinical evidence i think it's uh it's clear it's there mm -hmm. right so uh i started and i'm saying this as someone who spent fair amount of years studying neurobiological plasticity right. So uh, clearly, uh, classical psychedelics are capable of promoting neurobiological plasticity, learning associated with it. Uh, there is a series of papers where psychedelics were called psychoplastogens, right? For that <laughs> incredible ability to stimulate neurobiological plasticity. And we know that plasticity is largely harmed 
in uh, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, uh, Lewy body dementia. That was the focus of my work for also, you know, for many years. Uh, and for me, this is a clear rationale. Uh, moreover, back in the days when I was just starting working with that and uh, we had a conversation in the department when we were running our studies with cognitive training. And of course, you know, for me, you know, I thought that's what we need to investigate, <laughs> what we needed to study. But back then it was not feasible to launch a study with psychedelics in Sweden to tell you, you know, a little bit more about the background, you know, when we, when, when the Swedish network for psychedelic science was started, thanks to which to a very large extent, we were able to run, uh, our first clinical trial. I talked to my colleagues and I mean, there were lots of people who were very positive about the potential of psychedelics for basic science, for mental health. But they said, well, I mean, Alex, yes, we understand, but let's be realistic. That's something that is never going to happen in Sweden in the near future. And I think, well, maybe in, in a couple of years after that, everything went quite smoothly What once we, once there was funding. Uh, I mean, I had experience interacting with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, agencies that are, you know, like the an analogs of FDA yeah. and it went smoothly. But, you know, the, the, the point it's, uh, you know, I, I'm... Um, uh, just to narrow down my answer, yeah. so I do think it's a uh, it's a very promising area of research, and I uh, that was one of the things that I that that I proposed back uh, back in the days. Uh, I remember uh, Amanda Fielding when mm -hmm. she was in Sweden, so she was the one also in favor of that kind of research, and um, but yeah, I communicated it. Um, uh, to you know exploring the possibility of running that and uh it was it was very hard i mean it was very hard to work with other pharma pharmacological substances even like you know the ones that are very well studied uh like l-dopa for example mm -hmm. it was very hard to get through and that was not the right time uh for that kind of studies and now i'm happy to see that this research is gradually being prioritized and i do think it has a tremendous potential not only for alzheimer's but also for parkinson's like all age-related neuro neurodegenerative conditions. You know, it's so fascinating to think about. Like, if we think about psychedelics and and when they enter the zeitgeist or when they enter the society, isn't it fascinating to think that this part of this generation, the baby boomers, who are now getting to the point where they may have neurodegenerative diseases, were were one of the were one wave where they experimented with them. Thus, they might be more open to using them later. It's, you know, it's 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 this, it's this beautiful tapestry in a way to see it coming back around to help out these people. That the medicine's opening back up to it on some level. I guess it brings me to this idea of the general shift, the generational shifts in attitudes merely reflect changing cultural tides, or do technologies and drugs play a role in reshaping mindsets? Mm -hmm. uh, interesting that you brought up the baby boomers. I watched some <laughs> of the videos on your on your channel. I'm um, sorry, I, I cannot call the name. I I I I can't remember. So with all due respect, that was well put. You know why? Why considering the 60s and the amount of psychedelics taken by baby boomers, why are we not living in an enlightened society, right? <laughs> right. Uh, that's that's so beautifully put. Uh, and uh, again, so that's. Uh, that's, I think, a partial answer to your question. I, yeah. I don't think that psychedelics 
are the answer. They are one of the tools that we have, and yeah. uh, we still, all of us need to do personal work and and be proactively involved in in shaping in shaping the way we interact and, and treat each other. Yeah. And it's... technology, yes, you know, right now uh, we are living in a peculiar moment, right? That uh, to some extent, the technology, some may argue, may be a little bit ahead of our yeah. psychological and spiritual development. And, um, you know, um, at the ceremonies, um you know anyone who participated in um in psychedelic ceremonies understands that there are difficult moments that affect all actors in the circle and uh sometimes it may be tempting to point fingers to oh well how horrible it's all oh how it you know, it's all happening, uh, that shouldn't be done this way. But it, these are the exact moments when everyone needs to exercise patience and respect to each other and look inwards. And that's what I think we all need to do now at different levels. Um, um, and yes, yeah, so when the technology or any progress is happening too fast when there is a roller coaster of experience whereas there is a roller coaster of changes that mm -hmm. we are undergoing to that's when um that's when our ability to look inwards and uh and be patient and calm and respectful are becoming paramount yeah you know i when i think about ceremony sometimes and, and respectful and psychedelics one one trend or one thing that i've been talking to people about this thing that comes up is the way in the west at least in the united states that we treat death you know death is something i, I just recently learned like the etymology of palliative care like pal means the shroud so palliative care means to shroud death. And it's such a, it makes me want to cry. It kind of gives me goosebumps. Like that's yeah. how we treat death here. It's like, don't look at it. Be afraid of it. It's so scary. Oh, we, oh, we hate it. We hate it so much. We're going to keep people alive even when their spirit may have left them already. Like my grandma was just a vegetable for like, for so long. And they have these codes. They don't even have a code for death because they can't, you know what I mean? It's like yes. on some level, it's, it's this relationship to death that we're deathly afraid of, and it robs the dignity of it. And, it, and somehow it robs all of us of, 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 of life in some ways. Like, yes, you know, I, I'm sad about that. I'm wondering if I can get your opinions with that. And maybe can psychedelics on some level help us work with that strategy? What do you think? Mm -hmm. um, I am going to speak from my, you know, on my own sure. opinion, right? Not Please. as a, as a scientist, even though there is some science done on the fear of death, uh, not only on psychedelics. Um, to me, the societal um, phobia of death and everything related to dying is also a reflection 
of a crisis of meaning. Mm, yeah. Um, because, um, well, uh, we are talking right now and just a few days ago, uh, well, uh, Roland Griffiths passed away, right? Yes. Uh, who is, uh, for me, was one of the most influential people in the modern psychedelic science. And you can see um, how it's very touching, you know, it's very touching how, how he passed away. Um, and you can see that this person lived very profound and meaningful life. And um, there was no, well, I'm, I don't dare to say that there was no fear of death. I think it's natural. It's a, it's a, it's embedded in the very foundation of our biology of our existence. Uh, but there was acceptance and, uh, and, um, and peace. Mm. And I think what brings peace, um, in many challenging situation is the sense of meaning, right? Um, it's, I understand, I'm not saying it's an easy thing and that's, you know, there is like a, a five minute solution to find hmm. meaning and uh, to find something that you're not afraid to die for. Hmm. But, you know, if someone manages to find that something that is worth dying for, um, then uh, suddenly it does not become that scary, I think. Um, and uh, yes, to me, the uh, right, you know, there is a uh, there is an extreme saying by Charles Bukowski: <laughs> "Find what you like and let it kill you." <laughs> It's a very, it's a very Bukowski way of saying right. that, but there is some truth to it, I think. And, um, cause, um, on a grand scale, a human life is a, uh, is a very short moment mm -hmm. and, um, it's very easy to get lost in the, in, in, uh, in all the floods of information that we are dealing, yep. all the demands that we are seeing in social media, you have to be an ideal father, an ideal worker, um, and forget about what what fulfills our lives with meanings. Yeah, it's um, it's a uh, it's a reflection out loud. But I uh, just to give you a very short and packaged answer. So to me, uh, I do think that uh, to a large extent we lost this connection to well, the 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 lost connection to death, to nature, and to meaning are very intricately related to me. Yeah, that's that's really well said. It for me, like I, I have found recently, maybe it's my age. I'm almost I'm almost fifty, 
and maybe it's my age, but I believe it's also my relationship with psychedelics that allowed me to confront that the life I had been living for quite some time was a lie. It was, it was in some ways it allowed me to see the absurdity of chasing things that are really shiny and that it, it allowed me to chase the meaning that was already packaged up and there for me to take rather than provide meaning for myself. Yes. And it, it's scary. It's really scary to get to that point and see it and be like, I can't do it anymore. Like, especially like, and like, it's so interesting because I, I think on some level, that's when you start to live a little bit. Like when you, you know what I mean? There's that saying that says, if you die before you die, you never die. But like, it's really, it's really damn hard to walk away from a, a living when you have a family, when you have yeah. all these bills, when you have a mortgage, when, hey, what's my wife going to say when I say I'm leaving this place? You know, and then you, but on some level, it's that very move that will allow you to have a conversation with your wife that you've never had in your life. It'll oh, allow you to have a conversation with your daughter about, I'm going to do this so that she can see that you're supposed to do this. You know what I mean? And like, I get goosebumps when I think about it. Yes, me too. You know, and I, I think, I, I know for me, psychedelics played a role in finding the courage to do it. And it's on this, maybe it speaks to the idea of your relationship with uncertainty. And maybe that speaks to death too, right? On some level. Yes. Um, thank you for saying this. I just wanted to say that uh, it resonates deeply uh, with me, uh, what, what you're saying. And um, um, when it comes to, work with psychedelics, uh, there were several attempts in uh, my career when I tried to steer away from them um, to do different things, you know, that would not put my career at risk, that would be, I would bring more predictable things to life. Um, but, um, that's um, ultimately I I felt that I I couldn't do that because uh, that was not giving me the fulfillment and uh, um, now I learned uh, that I as a scientist I I cannot research I cannot dedicate my life to researching what I don't believe in. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, even what I believe in, I need to question and put to test and just remain genuine. And uh, that's a, that's a, that's a hard path of a scientist, right? To question your own beliefs and yeah, but you know, what I wanted to say, um, the ability to be honest with your own aspirations, with your own desires about your own life, what matters and what doesn't. Very often it's one of the hardest things to do, but that's the thing that is very closely linked to 
Okay, so I, I disappeared for a second. I don't know what <laughs> a cliffhanger. That was, that, that's a cool moment. <laughs> that was beautiful in a way. Oh, I'm back. I'm back. I don't know what happened. So that's uh, that's uh, that's the thing that is most delicately and closely linked to our well-being and meaning in life. Uh, and uh, at this point, I cannot see my life without this sense and the ability to be honest with myself, with what matters and what does not. It's it's so closely tied with scripture in some ways about being reborn again or death and a rebirth, you know, and I can't help, yeah. but like, it just, maybe, maybe instead of scriptures, you could use Sufi poetry, you yes. know, but I mean, it's probably better, but like, yeah. I, we had I that could... joke where we had that, you know, I was joking when we were preparing an application to, to our Swedish analog of FDA for, for our study on psilocybin. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to sell an idea to, to that organization that the best experience you may possibly have as an experience of your own death. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, at the same time, it's uh, that's true, you know. Mm. Um, there is a lot of symbolic mm -hmm. and personal value in these sorts of experiences. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, well, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. You know, dying once uh, makes you not a, not being afraid of, of of dying next next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating to think about. I I'm mesmerized by it, and I um, Doctor Alexander exceeded all my expectations. I truly thank you for a very candid conversation and laying out your opinion next to what you think about scientifically that that's almost unheard of. And I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to spend with me to, to talk about all your opinions, to talk about all the research you've been doing to thank you for the papers you've been publishing. But before I let you go, maybe you can tell us a couple things. One is where can people find you? What do you have coming up? And what are you most excited about? Yeah. Um, I, um, well, right now, um, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stationed in Sweden right now. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting time for me at the moment. It's, uh, it hasn't been the best time to be a Russian, uh, but each day I humbly, accept the challenges life throws my way uh cherishing what you know remains or what hasn't been taken from me i'm grateful for the moments i share with yeah. my daughter the liberty to pursue my research and uh, the roof over my head uh, sadly many people don't don't have even this these days mm. so people can find me in person in Sweden uh, because the way I was welcomed in the research community back in the days of the first year in my medical school, whenever I get requests from students, I will, I am doing my best. I always do my best to at least meet over coffee, to listen to the people, to know how I can be of help. Uh, even if, you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like we 
there is a place at the lab, for example. So, you know, if people want to meet me in person, so just they can email me. Uh, you know, they just Google Alexander Lebedev Karolinska. There is my professional email. Um, I, uh, uh, what I am up to right now, so we launched a, uh, a startup in, uh, in Sweden leveraging uh, Dream Analytics, um, allowing people to explore their unconscious. For me, okay, I'm trying to think how I can unpack it in a yeah in a fixed amount of time. Take your time, take your time, man. Um, right. So there were different ways to reintroduce uh, the things we've talked about to the Western society. You know, connection to nature, the way to connect with each other, uh, to our spiritual roots and we learned that the new age way is uh, probably not the way for the western society but i do think that technology specifically um, some of the tools that we have right now allowing people to make sense of the experiences that are very hard to make sense uh just by you know reading them and uh uh you know trying to interpret them rationally i think that technology have a tremendous capacity to show us that we all intricately connected yeah me too and that's what the dream seer is all about uh it's a um, it's an immersive experience that we are building and we are building it with the community um uh right now we are running our um alpha testing phase uh receiving wonderful feedback uh dream series a story of our days it's a narrative that is being told not only by me, not by the co-founders. It's uh, the narrative that is being told by all of us, and uh, that's the uh, that's the startup uh, that um, we initiated. So there are scientists, programmers, artists that are involved in creating it. Uh, in the quest to resurrect and explore the new ways we can evolve and connect with each other. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds I cannot, fascinating. I, no, it's maybe we could talk more about it. Like what, what, like when you say it's a narrative, is it, is it like a documentary? Is it something that I put a headset on to? Is it something that I'm, it's interactive and immersive or do I, do I see it in a dream? Like maybe you tell me more about it, man. It sounds fascinating. Practically, the most simplistic way and uh, the way to describe the technology, it's a dream analytics app. Okay, so that's the okay. most reductionistic way to describe it. <laughs> okay. You wake up uh, in the morning, you activate voice to text or type okay. your dream. 
um, you get the uh, feedback on the occurring themes and sentiments that you have in your dream. And each individual dream has a unique set of coordinates in a uh, in a shared space and um, there is a narrative that evolves based on the dreams that people see that we all see there is also a story to tell about the dream realm and uh, that's something that Carl Jung was studying and described in the dreams of his patients and his own dreams and before the Second World War. Mm, um, yeah. And we know right now there is uh, most of one of the most prevalent theory of dreams and dreaming is the continuity hypothesis that dreams are reflective of what's happening in our own mental space. And uh, I, with this technology, we are trying to revisit, test, expand and explore some of the ideas, some of the old ideas, including ideas of Jung, about our shared mental space. And there is a narrative. So there is a there is a story that is being told. Uh, uh, there is a something like a visual novel that evolves. There is a lore. There is a lore in uh, that that we shape together with the community. So do you think, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of, I've heard people say that Young's Red Book was his adventure into psychedelics. Have you heard that? Yes. Interestingly, <laughs> Carl Jung himself was quite skeptical, let's put it this way, about psychedelics. He saw them as a, as potentially dangerous uh, when an unprepared mind enters this realm. Um, of course, he has his own indigenous, very powerful non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, but among psychedelic therapists, uh, there are many people with Jungian background, and uh, it does not surprise me. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I do think that some of the concepts introduced by, by Carl Jung, while they may look bizarre by some accounts, I think right now we are we have tools to to rigorously rigorously investigate and uh, verify or or on the other hand reject them. So we'll see. For me, Jung was not the entrance to psychedelic research. It was rather the other way around. Uh, I first encountered Jung and Jungian ideas. I think that was the first year in the med school too when I first came to the department of psychiatry and one of the first assignment that I was given by my first teacher before I joined the group doing brain imaging one of the first assignments was to write a report on where voices are coming from mm. and I was fascinated by neuroscience you know I created a I think a decent report by uh, student standards on neurobiology of of uh, voices uh, happening in in some schizophrenia spectrum disorder. Mm. You know, there was enough imaging work, neurophysiological work on that. So my teacher read it and said it's beautifully written. But where the voices are coming from? <laughs> Why do we see? 
different narratives. Why do we see transformation of different objects that are, well, if it is a persecutory ideas or persecutory uh, voices, why do we see this transformation of changes in different cultural contexts? And I realized that I didn't have an answer for that uh, based on the information that I've collected. And later I learned that he was Jungian. I tried reading Jung uh, when I was in the first year, so it didn't land well. So I, I was very skeptical. Um, but that inability to answer a question was, was something that really stuck with me. And uh, that eventually stimulated my development as a researcher. And uh, in some way, probably led me to study psychedelics, to study socionomics, the global societal dynamics. Uh, and uh, I think it's probably one of the most valuable, valuable gifts that I've received during my education, this simple assignment. And, uh, and the question that challenged my my views. Uh, so that's how I got into Jung and eventually ended up completing my own analysis in, in Jungian framework. <laughs> well, so where do the voices come from? <laughs> <laughs> I think that we have good reasons to believe uh, that the way our society interacts, uh, brings emergent properties into our dynamics that uh, may also continue to influence our behavior at large. Uh, some of these ideas resonate with one of the godfathers of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim. He mm. authored a massive work on suicide that was called Suicide. Mm. And his concept was that, you know, one of the reasons of the mental, and he predicted the deterioration of mental health crisis and the suicide crisis in particular. That was one of the first work, like really massive work on sociology. Uh, and his idea was that, you know, there is a, there is a paradox that despite being connected with each other based on our skills and you know the society is becoming more interdependent we are becoming more disconnected from each other on a spiritual and personal level and that what brings a lot of challenges to our lives and our mental health in particular anyhow so he was one of the first to talk about this societal dynamics uh, that some of the concepts may continue to exist and influence our behavior you know, one example, Christmas, right? There, there are not that many people who actually believe in the, uh, uh, in the, you know, in, in, in the whole story, right? But, you know, it also, it's also a celebration that has a massive history and also from an anthropological account. But this is the concept that keeps determining massively the way we behave, starting from basic things like shopping patterns. So that's a massive yeah. construct that continues to influence that. And I think that, uh, that's uh, that's true for many of the driving forces in our society. Uh, I don't know where my own ideas are coming from. I don't. Mm. Uh, creativity is itself is a very interesting thing, right? So I uh, yeah. 
I, uh, um, I well, uh, I don't have a definite answer, right? So where the voices, where creative thoughts, where the ideas are coming from, I think uh, there are good reasons to believe that uh, we are not fully, and I know it's a dangerous way of putting it, especially for a scientist, fully responsible and fully authoring the ideas that we are bringing and communicating. Yep. Uh, but yes, we are responsible in the way we are communicating it probably and the way we shape them. But the origin of creative ideas, novelty, revelations uh, is a uh, continues to be a mystery that I dedicated, I'm trying to de dedicate my life to understand. It's so true. I mean, it, you can you can scroll through biographies or YouTube videos, or I've talked to plenty of people where I'll, they've written a book and a large portion of people say the same thing. Like this was written through me. You know, I felt like it just, it came right through me. I've, I've, I've been on really high doses of uh, like four ACO DMT. And I'll never forget the first time I heard a voice in my head. It scared me to death. Like I remember like curled up like a, like a frightened cat in the bathtub. Like what? Whoa. You know, and for a moment I'm like, oh my, you know, later after I was, after I got through the experience, like the next day I was like, I can't imagine having that experience. Like imagine having that all the time. You know, you don't know what it is like, wow. And that, that brings us back to the idea of, you know, maybe in, in, in the sixties or fifties, they did research where the, the professional would take this, take the drug so they could understand psychosis. Like that's a brilliant move. Like you really get an insight from there, from understanding from a perspective, what it's like, or, or even like really high doses where you, you think things that are could be considered way out in left field. And then later you kind of come back to this rational understanding, whatever that means, you know, and you're like, that was so real. I still believe it in some ways. You know, I, yeah. I there, there's so much more going on than we, than we really have any idea. Yes, man. Have you, have you read Julian James' book, The Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind? Um, I haven't read it fully. I'm familiar with the concept. Uh, a good colleague of mine, uh, we talked about it with a good colleague of mine, uh, Robin Carhart Harris. Um, yes. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I haven't read the entire book. I'm right, familiar right. with the concepts. Yes, I, th I find them interesting. Fascinating to think about a corresponding part to Broca's area and Wernicke's area in the opposite side of the brain that may be responsible for voices. Yes. Yes. <sighs> Man. So, so I, here's another one. Now that I'm thinking about it a little bit, when, when we think about synesthesia, do we know, it sounds to me like that could be information being processed in the visual cortex or, or information being processed or visual information being processed in like the sound part of our brains. Do we know what, do we know what's going on there when synesthesia happens? Yes. Um, actually a good colleague of mine here in Sweden is studying or used to study synesthesia. 
Um, well, first, right, so when we are talking about, uh, for lack of a better word, normal waking consciousness, <laughs> so the networks, there are some networks that usually do not interact or interact very little, uh, visual network, auditory network. So there is a certain amount of segregation between them. So what we see happening during psychedelic experiences and what we see in uh, people with synesthesia is that there is more crosstalk between mm. these networks um, as compared to uh, non-synesthetic. Is there such a word? In, in, in people without synesthesia, uh, in normal waking consciousness. If we look at the way learning is, is and, and forgive me if I get this wrong, but if we look at learning as a strengthening in connections between different parts of the brain, is it possible that some of, if someone experiences synesthesia often, that that can become a normal pathway, maybe leading to more creativity in some ways? Um, I think creativity or some create aspects of creativity, right? It's, um, it's very intricately related to the ability to see connections that um, mm, are not right. obvious. Right. And uh, in that sense, I mean, I don't have data to support it that it may actually be linked to better creativity. I think there are studies showing that uh, synesthesia is more prevalent in creative specialties, but don't quote me on that. Uh, creativity, right? So there are different ways to conceptualize creativity, you know, uh, say artistic creativity, creativity of an abstract visual artist as compared to creativity of an engineer mm -hmm. or a scientist. Um, well, the way we operationalize creativity in the lab when we are administering tests for creativity, like stores, like Torrance test for creative thinking or alternative use test, which is, you know, a very simple task, you know, uh, you have a break, you have a word break, you have five minutes to come up with as many potentially right. potential uses for that word. So, uh, it well, there are two aspects of creativity the way it's operationalized in, in the lab it should be novel, unusual, and useful. Uh, and in that sense, I think that in a way, maybe more flexible patterns of brain dynamics linked to the exchange of information between the regions that usually interact little uh, may introduce an extra capacity to get new insights to look on a on a situation or a problem under a different angle so there were actually some studies done in the pre-prohibition era uh, among entrepreneurs scientists uh, trying to solve a problem for a very long time and then, you know, and the going in a psychedelic session, discovering novel solutions. Uh, in that sense, I do think that uh, this aspect of creativity, the ability to look at the problem under a new angle, uh, there, I think there is a story to tell about that. It does not still exclude the ability to make sense of this novel look and uh, 
uh, one of the, you know, that there is a link between psychosis and creativity. You know, mm. that people among siblings uh, of people with creative professions, there are more relatives suffering from psychosis spectrum disorders. Uh, there are studies linking some traits like psychoticism to creativity. And there are studies showing that if it's, you know, like polygenic risk score studies, so people who score high on polygenic risk scores for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder while not having a psychiatric condition, meaning that their genome resembles more of those with uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are more likely to have creative professions. Mm. And uh, um, so it's uh, there is a link and uh, there are some groups that believe that schizophrenia and psychosis itself is a side effects of a tremendous expansion of our creative abilities as the homo sapiens to discover patterns, to adopt. And uh, when perhaps this ability is not met with the capacity to contain and to incorporate this ability to perceive unusual patterns, it can go overboard and uh, compromise a, uh, a sane, for the lack, for lack of a better word, reality perception and connection to reality. So, you know, uh, to me, creativity is an interesting dance yeah. between subjective and objective reality and uh, all about the, uh, an ability of an individual to befriend your subjective or internal and external reality. That's a beautiful answer. It, I, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Jessica Rochester a while back, and she had mentioned that, I don't know if she read it somewhere or, or who she was citing, but there were some indigenous people that came to the United States and were mesmerized by seeing some of the, the people that were in the hospitals and were, you know, it's that, and that had psychosis. And they're like, what are you doing? These are the people that have see patterns that no one else does. And, you know, I, I, I have had an incredible time here, Dr. Alexander. I, I could probably talk to another two hours and I, I am super thankful for everything that you put, that you put out there and that we've talked about today and uh, for all the work you're doing. And you've been very gracious with your time and, uh, is there anything else that, that you want to leave people with before, before we turn it over? No, I think we, we covered a lot, uh, similar so, to you. I, um, uh, I'm sure if we had more time, we would find lots of topics for the conversation. Yeah. It's been a really great pleasure talking to you, George. It's been one of the, uh, this were, well, probably one of the greatest questions I've uh, I've been asked on the interview. So thank you, thank you very much. It's been it's been a great pleasure to 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 be present in this interview. Thank you for having me, and uh, um, I'm wishing all of us patience um, and uh, and compassion. Yeah. I think hands down, you're one of the most brilliant researchers out there and what you're adding to the field is phenomenal. And I, anybody who is listening right now, 
check out his discography. He's got tons of incredible work out there and it's wonderful. And, um, thanks again. Uh, if you hang on real briefly afterwards, I'll talk to you short, just real briefly afterwards, but to everyone listening right now, Aloha. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a beautiful day and the, that's all I got. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.